Go ahead and pray and get started. So let's do that. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you again for your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity to read it, talk about it, understand it with our finite human minds. Father, we pray that you will do what only you can do. Uh, Open our eyes to your truth, Father. We acknowledge that we don't discover the truth. You reveal it to us in your grace and in your mercy to us. So I pray that you'll do that today. It won't merely be an intellectual uh, exercise today, but a truly spiritual exercise today as you reveal yourself to us through your word. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right. We left off uh, with the book of Luke as we wrapped up the Gospels uh, Thursday night. So we are picking up with the book of Acts. And because we do have um, three or four pages of material to get through before the end of the day, uh, I am going to be light on personal commentary and big on rapidly going through the material. So buckle up your seat belts and hang on for the ride. I don't know why I said it in that voice. It just seemed appropriate. All right, Book of Acts. So, think about what's going to happen Sunday. Christians will meet across, across the Asian continent, from Japan to China to India, the Arabian Peninsula. Believers in Australia will be worshiping the risen Christ while we're asleep. Up and down Africa, from Cape Town to Cairo, across Europe in cities like Geneva, Oslo, London, Vienna. Below the equator in South America, hundreds of thousands in Brazil and Chile and Argentina will meet for the same purpose. Hundreds of thousands will meet up and down the east coast of the United States. And many more will meet across the country from Chicago to Dallas to Denver. And up the Pacific coast from San Diego to Seattle. And then out through the islands of the Pacific. The resurrection day of Jesus will be celebrated until people from every corner of the globe have gathered together to worship the risen Christ. Have you ever thought about how we got to this point? In Acts, we're going to explore how the kingdom of Christ spread from the Roman outpost town of Jerusalem to the very heart of the ancient civilized world itself, Rome. And that's going to teach us why this kingdom has continued to expand throughout the nations of the world since Luke wrote the book of Acts almost 2,000 years ago. So the book opens up, picking up where Luke left off in his gospel account, uh, with Jesus giving parting instruction to his disciples and then ascending up to heaven. So yeah, the blue bowl is fresh. Uh, So in Luke 24, 46 through 49, we read this. (coughs) And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Likewise, Luke begins Acts with a similar recounting of this event, uh, like a TV sequel. Previously. So, previously... When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, 
It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. And then in verse 8, here in Acts chapter 1, which functions as kind of a mini summary for the whole book, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And with that introduction, Luke accomplishes two things. One, he connects the gospel of Luke to the book of Acts, and he provides a preview of what we're going to see through the rest of Acts. Uh, Before the final culmination of Christ's kingdom, the gospel will go to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as we see God's sovereign hand through the book of Acts, we're going to grow to understand how he has likewise continued this, this expansion to and through us today. So, uh, as we already established, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And it's likely that they came as a a two-volume set early on. Uh, They weren't separated until later, with John being placed between them. The book was likely written not long after Luke's Gospel was written, uh, in the early 60s AD. And... While not a precise chronology or a comprehensive recounting of the events of the early church, Acts can be considered a historical work. Uh, Luke was a careful researcher, uh, as evidenced with his gospel account. And we have no reason to doubt uh, the historical and factual veracity of Acts either. Uh, He has been compared to many great historians secular-wise, Uh, And he ranks there up at the top as far as historians uh, go. So why did Luke write Acts? Uh, Scholars have suggested a number of purposes for Acts. uh, Reconciliation of Jewish and Gentile Christianity. uh, Providing an apologetic for why Rome should consider Christianity as a legitimate religion. uh, Defending Paul's ministry. And while all of these could have been some of the things the Holy Spirit was looking to accomplish through Acts, we should understand that the primary purpose was the edification of Christians. It was written to build us up in our faith. So Luke edifies us by describing the historical foundation for Christian faith and by showing through his historical survey that the church of his and Theophilus' day is the culmination of biblical history. God's salvation was revealed in and made available through his son, Jesus Christ. The message of that salvation was entrusted by Christ himself to his apostles and through the empowering and directing of the Holy Spirit. They have now brought that message and the salvation it mediates to the ends of the earth. That is from Carson, Moo, and Morris. Isn't that a... Wouldn't you love to... Yep. Carson, Moo, and Morris. Moving on. I'm going to move on. Uh, As we consider Acts, I hope you'll be encouraged to see where you fit into God's redemptive purposes, because you do, and something of his sovereign care uh, for you by expanding his kingdom to the likes of us. So we're going to take the book in four main parts. Uh, The work of the Holy Spirit in the book, uh, and though it's often titled the Acts of the Apostles, a more fitting name would be Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He is the one who empowers everything that takes place in the book of Acts. Um, And second, the gospel message that propels the expansion of Jesus' kingdom, uh, the progression of that expansion from Jerusalem to Rome, 
And then lastly, God's sovereign purpose in all of this. So uh, the power of kingdom expansion was wrought by the Holy Spirit. Uh, just as Christ had promised in one and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit does come. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see this. Uh, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this wouldn't be the last time we read of this type of experience in Acts. We read about it in chapter 8, where the gospel is being preached in Samaria. We read about it in chapter 10 at the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Uh, and then the same thing happens to the new believers in Ephesus in chapter 19. So we see it several times throughout the book of Acts. And it's significant that these obvious comings of the Holy Spirit uh, mirror the stages of Jesus' prophecy about the expansion of his church back in chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, we see this happening at Pentecost in Jerusalem. Then you see it when the gospel comes to Samaria and to the Gentiles there. And finally, towards the, end, toward the ends of the earth in places like Ephesus. So the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts seems to act in ways that are extraordinarily supernatural. Of course, I would argue, what other way can he act because we serve a supernatural God? So in order to validate the message of the gospel when it first comes to new places. Uh, as such, these remarkable works of the Spirit should be best understood as an extension of, of Pentecost. Not necessarily, that was emphasis if you missed that. Uh, not necessarily the normative experiences of believers receiving Christ through the ages. Again, these were in order to validate the message of the gospel when it first comes to new places. Uh, yet the Holy Spirit is very important and active today. Uh, we need to listen to Luke. In Acts, he labors to prove to us that Jesus really did deliver on his promise to send his Holy Spirit to the church, not just the early church, but the church, all of us who believe in him. So the filling of the Holy Spirit isn't a one-time event. It's something that will continue to occur throughout the believer's life. In Ephesians, Paul actually commands us to be filled with the Spirit. And as we continue on through the New Testament, we're going to see uh, the way that Christians grow in faith is not by reminiscing about the Holy Spirit's miracles, but rather by having the Holy Spirit actively transform their character uh, through the preaching of the word and through the other spirit-given gifts of edification to the church. As we re read in 1 Corinthians 12, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So a good question for us to ponder today might be, are you aware of and thankful for the Holy Spirit? Uh, there is a great tendency to overemphasize experiences of the Holy Spirit's work but it's also dangerous to ignore him altogether. In other words, don't be at other, other end of the swinging pendulum. You need to be there in the middle. Uh, we should rejoice that God by his spirit is opening our minds to his word, convicting us of sin, conforming us to the image of Christ, assuring us of God's grace, and guiding us by his presence. So in Acts, uh, the spirit provides the power that Christ promised before his ascension. What does that power do? That leads us to our second point. 
the Spirit works through men and women to expand the kingdom by making known the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, the message of kingdom expansion. Something fascinating that you might see in the book of Acts is that even though God is miraculously at work, every single conversion is due to a person explaining the message of the gospel. Remember, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is what? The power of God into salvation, not miracles. When God wants the Ethiopian eunuch to believe, he sends Philip to tell him the good news about Jesus. In the very next chapter, even after Jesus appears to Saul as there is in Christ, it is not until Ananias explains it that he receives the Spirit. In chapter 10, God uses a series of visions to both Peter and Cornelius to bring the two of them together so that Peter can share the gospel with Cornelius. So for some reason, God has chosen to always work his divine power of conversion through human beings proclaiming the message of the gospel. And what is that message? Well, Peter proclaimed it at Pentecost as we read in chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's the same message of hope that we need to hear today. It's good news that declares to us that even though God is absolutely perfect, the Holy Spirit is utterly holy, set apart from us, and even though we have rebelled against this perfect God and broken his law and our sin so that none of us is fit for his holy presence but instead deserve his judgment, in spite of all of that, because of his mercy, the Son of God came in the flesh to save us. Jesus, through the willing sacrifice of his own life on the cross, reconciled us to God so that we would be forgiven of our sins and by grace enjoy the presence of God's Holy Spirit. If we would only repent of our empty, selfish ways and believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, that's the gospel. That's why the point of Acts and what the apostles teach all throughout this book was not ultimately Jesus' life, but his death, resurrection, and what he accomplished. When they spoke about Jesus, they treated it much different than a, than a, a biography. Most biographies give equal attention to every noteworthy detail of a person's life. But these apostles were fixated on the end of the story. Their core, the core of their message was the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, as an example, look at Acts chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. We read this. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So the power behind the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit, but his means is the gospel. And what that means for us today, as we see people all around us who do not trust in Jesus, is that we should pray and proclaim. Pray that the Holy Spirit would miraculously change hearts. But don't just pray and then sit on your couch. Proclaim the good news with boldness and grace, in joyful times and in the midst of persecution, just like the believers in Acts. 
So those first verses of Acts provide an excellent breakdown for the entire book. Verse 8, chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, from Jerusalem to Rome. And then from chapter 2 through chapter 6, Luke recounts for us what's going on in the church of Jerusalem. And he moves to geographic expansion in chapter 6 through chapter 9, beginning with the speech of Stephen before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Stephen boldly lays out a biblical theology for why the kingdom was never meant to be confined to a, a particular ethnic people, that is the Jews. Uh, And what's the response? He's stoned to death. Yet after Stephen is killed, we see that the gospel spreads throughout Judea to Samaria. And then Philip explains the gospel to a court official of the queen of Ethiopia. And then Saul of Tarsus, uh, the future missionary, is converted in chapter 9. So the first half of Acts, in which Peter is the central character, wraps up with a dramatic account of the gospel being brought to the Roman centurion Cornelius in chapter 10. Now, consider how monumental this was uh, to Peter to be called to bring the gospel to a Gentile. Uh, We read that Peter was shocked at God's insistence to not consider unclean what God had called clean. And the Lord is challenging the very heart of what Peter valued as a Jew. In chapter 10, he says this, it says this, And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, Ye yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. We read that immediately after hearing the gospel and believing, that Cornelius and those in his household experienced the same outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was experienced at Pentecost. What Peter must have been thinking then? Could the words of Christ recorded in Luke 13 maybe been ringing in his ears at that moment when Jesus said, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So here's Peter, the one who had persistently confused Christ's kingdom with false Jewish messianic dreams. Now he's an instrument of exactly the kind of kingdom Christ had begun to establish. To use the imagery from Jesus' parable in Luke 14, Peter was now the one to invite new guests to God's wedding banquet, ones that would seem most undeserving of the privilege. And it wasn't just a new experience for Peter. As the gospel expanded to the Gentiles, it forced the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem to begin grappling with some basic questions about the nature of the gospel and its expansion to the Gentiles. In chapter 11, it says, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So Peter recounts the entire event, including God's call to him and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit. After hearing all this, it says, When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
So how do you respond to this early expansion of the gospel? Do you identify with Cornelius, a gracious recipient of God's grace, even though he was not a Jew? In the providence of God, he has seen fit to expand his kingdom to many more Corneliuses. Maybe you identify with Peter, who at first didn't understand this aspect of God's plan. And there's a lesson here. We should consider no one beyond God's ability to reach. And there's no people group that is unclean or untouchable. So if you're tempted to see evangelism primarily in terms of sharing the gospel with people relatively similar to you, then read this account of Peter going to, to Cornelius. Consider that it would have been men similar to Cornelius who oversaw and carried out the execution of Jesus. I almost said similar. Oh. <laughs> and now Peter is bringing the gospel message to one of these men. Peter went and shared, not because it was easy or convenient, but because of God's mighty command. Then in the second half of Acts, Luke takes the focus off of Peter and shifts the camera to Saul of Tarsus, otherwise known as Paul. So he would be the vehicle God used to dramatically expand the kingdom into the Gentile world. And as the second half of Acts begins in chapter 12, we see Paul and Barnabas heading from Antioch to Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. Then on to Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, uh, all of which are in modern-day southwest uh, Turkey today. Uh, in each of these towns and cities, Paul and Barnabas established a pattern. They would go to the synagogue and teach. Then they would encounter Jewish uh, rejection, a general rejection of the gospel message, which would result in Paul preaching to Gentiles. And finally, Jewish, pers- Jewish persecution would come, forcing them to leave. And after retracing their travels back to Antioch in Syria, Paul and Barnabas were summoned back to Jerusalem to defend and discuss their Gentile outreach. That's what they do in Acts 15 as they meet with the elders and the apostles. Uh, The central concern was whether Gentile converts uh, must be circumcised or observe other aspects of Jewish law in order to be Christians. The ever-bold Peter rightly defends the work of Barnabas. Now therefore, he says in chapter 15, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The council agrees and they draft a letter to Gentile believers asking them merely to encourage their fellow Jewish Christians by living upright lives and avoiding common stumbling blocks. And then the rest of Acts, chapter 16 through 28, is really about the continued expansion of the gospel into the Gentile world. Uh, Paul's first trip went into modern-day Turkey, and his second trip would take him to modern-day Greece. Uh, Paul and Silas traveled to Macedonia, and after sharing the gospel with Lydia in Philippi in chapter 16, Paul and Silas are arrested and thrown into prison. They're rescued in similar fashion as Peter was rescued uh, earlier, but this time by a divinely appointed earthquake. 
They move on to Thessalonica and then Berea before arriving in Athens. And in Athens, Paul gives his famous address to the Areopagus, in which he quotes the Greeks, philo- the Greeks philosophers and poets to gain a hearing and then proclaims to them the one true God. And here, Paul is embodying what he would teach later, that he became all things to all men, not by altering the message of Jesus Christ, but by focusing it to the background and context of his audience, otherwise known as tailoring. Uh, We must pray for faithfulness as we do the same thing every time we share the gospel with our children, with our self-centered neighbor, uh, our Muslim co-worker, or simply a a non-religious aunt or uncle. Then in chapter 18, Paul moves on to Corinth, and he spends time working with Priscilla and Aquila, who Luke tells us were also tent makers. And while in Corinth, the Lord speaks to Paul. In Acts 19, verses 9 and 10, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." And what an encouragement that would have been to Paul, who in the midst of less obvious times of gospel expansion. Paul and every other Christian after him can be encouraged in this ministry to be faithful. God has chosen who will come to him. We don't bear the responsibility of how much or how quickly the kingdom expands. God does. Our job is to faithfully proclaim the message of the gospel not cause people to respond to it. Then in chapter 19, Paul moves on to Ephesus. There a riot ensues because uh, silversmith workers recognize that Paul's message is bad news for their business. They were idol makers, and Paul preached the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. So in God's providence, the riot doesn't do any harm to Paul or to the young church there. In fact, when Paul returns to Ephesus sometimes later, sometime later, he is able to encourage the Ephesian elders. <coughs> so riots and opposition may come, but <clears throat> these men have the most weighty of responsibilities. In chapter 20, 28, verse 28, says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. As we read of suffering in Acts, we should be reminded to pray for our own elders, that they would lead us to rely on Christ in the midst of hardship. And after this second trip to Asia, Asia, back to Asia, Asia, (laughs) after this second trip to Asia Minor, Paul returns to Jerusalem and trouble awaits him. The ensuing chapters uh, in Jerusalem, chapters 21 through 26, provide some of the most gripping narrative in the New Testament outside of the Passion Week accounts. First, Jews stir up the crowds against Paul and he is arrested. He appears first before the Jewish Sanhedrin and then he is transferred to a prison in Caesarea because of threats uh, against his life in Jerusalem. And then there uh, he appears before Festus, where he appeals his case to Caesar himself. Now in Acts 23, God had already promised Paul that he would proclaim the gospel in Rome. Yet Paul didn't just sit back and wait. In his appeal, 
he took advantage of his Roman citizenship, which God used to send Paul to Rome. In this case, and throughout Acts, we see the apostles and the early Christians taking bold action for Christ, using every resource the Lord had given for the purpose of expanding the kingdom. And this is a good pattern for us to look at. It's not wrong to use the gifts, opportunities, advantages, relationships that the Lord has given to us for the purpose of expanding his kingdom. It is a misinterpretation of the New Testament to think that Christians are called to sit back and wait for God. Certainly, patience and trust are part of the Christian life, but so is godly ambition. Some people will point where Jesus said to the disciples, wait in Jerusalem until power comes. Well, that power is the Holy Spirit. They had to wait for the Holy Spirit. We don't. Therefore, the whole wait for the power to come we already have it. So that's a horrible misinterpretation and misapplication of that verse. That's personal commentary, which I said I wouldn't do much of. So let's move on. After a long and dangerous journey that included a shipwreck, Paul arrives in Rome. And that is where Luke ends his story. In a matter of years after Christ's death and resurrection, the gospel has made its way from Jerusalem to the very center of power and culture at that time. So what encouraging words Paul speaks at the conclusion of Acts. Therefore, he says in verse 28 of chapter 28, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. That is such an awesome phrase. Hey, God has sent it to the Gentiles. And he doesn't just, there's not a period there. He goes, they will listen. I love that. So if we're tempted to place too much responsibility in the hands of Christ's disciples for accomplishing his missions, the wise words of a Pharisee named Gamaliel in chapter 5 offer corrective counsel. In the early days of the church, uh, the disciples were arrested and hauled before the Sanhedrin. And after Peter and the apostles gave their defense, the Sanhedrin was ready to put them to death until Gamaliel... Until Gumby spoke up. <laughs> uh, in Acts chapter 5, 34 through 39, we read, And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claimed to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. What a contrast to Paul's last words. They will listen. He says, oh, it will fail if this is man. And Paul says, oh, no, they will listen. Anyhow, I, I digress. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So in a rare show of wisdom for the Sanhedrin, it says, so they took his advice. Uh, this doesn't mean that we should use this as a standard for what is godly, but it does mean that God cannot be overthrown. That is what it means to be God. We read in Isaiah 46, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. 
I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So the book of Acts is one long validation that this was indeed of God. Angels are sent to release Christ's disciples from prison. Numerous passages show how the events of the early church were fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. The disciple that betrayed Jesus is replaced as predicted in Psalm 109. God pours out his spirit as Joel 2 had foretold. And Israel persisted in unbelief while the Gentiles believed exactly what Isaiah 49 had said would happen. Beyond the fulfillment of prophecy, we see that God does the work in the book of Acts. He grants repentance. He appoints for eternal life. He opens the door of faith in the hearts of those who believe. It is this choosing of people to be his that God uses even as a motivation for missions. He tells Paul to go to Corinth because... I have many in this city who are my people. The book of Acts tells us that even the death of Jesus was part of God's great plan, as Peter prays in chapter 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Jesus said that even the gates of hell would not overcome his church because of God's sovereign power behind it. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. God is at work. Nothing can stop his hand. And his plan is worked out masterfully. So that is an incredible cause for hope for us today. To be sure, the church today is hardly a picture of perfect health, nor has its message yet rung out to every people group, though Christians can be found nearly everywhere uh, on earth. But there are still millions who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is still at work. He continues to call men and women to faith in himself. He continues to expand his church. He continues to use weak vessels like us as his ambassadors. And the certain hope of the book of Acts is that he will accomplish all the work he has planned for us until our Lord returns again. That's the book of Acts. Uh, Any questions or thoughts? None whatsoever. All right. Then we will go ahead and move on to the Pauline epistles. Uh, That's a good question. The question was, is there any place in the book of Acts that says Paul spoke in tongues? And to my knowledge, there is nothing. Uh, Well, there may be a reference in 1 Corinthians 12 um, that he talks about doing it. Nothing in the book of Acts about when the Holy Spirit came upon him and he spoke in tongues. Um, so nothing in that context of him speaking in tongues, but when he is talking in, yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's evidence that he spoke in tongues, but no evidence that um, it was a Pentecost-like experience for him. So good question. Any other uh, questions? All right, moving on to the Pauline epistles. 
So if you're in charge of approving missionaries for some mission agency, what kind of person would you send? Uh, someone who is obviously mature in their Christian faith, someone who ha would have some ability to connect with the people the person was going to share the gospel with, you know, speak the language, understand the culture, etc. Probably someone with a proven ministry track record. Uh, would you choose a person who watched as a Christian preacher was stoned to death uh, and gave approval to his death? Would you choose a person who is known for breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples? Would you choose a man whose soul bent in life seemed focused on destroying everything the Christian faith stood for? Well, if you're in such a position, you probably would not have chosen Saul of Tarsus to spread the message of Christianity across the Roman world. Now, he was well-educated, but he was hardly a friend of Christians. And beyond that, even if such a figure were to be converted, why would you want to send one who had been a Pharisee of the Pharisees into the Gentile world? Now, thankfully, God does not act according to human wisdom. He chose exactly this kind of man to bring the gospel message to the very heart of the Gentile world. Between the sections of Acts that tell his story and the letters he wrote, about a third of the New Testament is tied up with this apostle to the Gentiles. Before we get to his letters, let's pause and consider Paul by answering three basic questions. What is the flight philosophy of a laden swallow? <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> so, uh... <coughs> Actually, the question is, who was Paul, and what was his ministry all about, and what did he write? And as we look, and look at these three questions and answer them, uh, we're going to see even more of our God who does not act according to man's wisdom, but instead gave the treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 7. So who was Paul? For one, he is profoundly prepared for his work as an apostle, in part because at one time he was a persecutor of the church. We'll start at the beginning of that remarkable transformation in him. Paul was a man who had the highest possible pedigree among religious Jews. In Philippians, Paul makes a significant statement about what he was. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the only two tribes uh, from which people had remained uncontaminated by intermarriage at the exile. Uh, his parents perhaps chose the name Saul, as in the first king of Israel, who was also from the tribe of Benjamin. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. Even though Saul wasn't born in Palestine, but in Tarsus, his family had retained the old, the old language. It wasn't just that he'd learned Hebrew in his education. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is, his parents were Aramaic-speaking. And his parents were also faithful to the law. They, uh, they had him circumcised on the eighth day as the law prescribed. And he says that as to the law, 
he was a Pharisee. So we read in Acts 22.3, uh, we see that Paul was educated under Gumby, uh, Gamaliel. I don't know why I have so much trouble with that name. Gamaliel. It's simple. Uh, the leading Pharisee of the day. Uh, we often think of Pharisee as a negative term. But the Pharisees were seen as the most careful and faithful Israelites. They abhorred how Israel had not learned her lesson from the exile, and they sought to enforce the law so that something like the exile would never happen again. That's why they were so careful to obey the law. The problem is they were so careful that they put a fence around the law. Their additional laws were designed to stop people getting anywhere near breaking the law, which meant they were actually trying to be more righteous than God himself. As for zeal, Paul was beyond even his education. Whereas uh, Gamaliel, woohoo, I said it, took a moderate and sensible position in regard to the early church, uh, suggesting that the authorities leave it alone, uh, that unless it was of God, it would die out on its own. Paul thought the Christians were far too dangerous for that. He would not have these people continue their false and perverted religion. So to his shame, Paul became a persecutor of the church. Now understand in Philippians, when he is laying out his resume to show the Philippians how impressive he was, when he says, as for zeal, a persecutor of the church, like, aren't I impressing you? I killed a, your brothers and sisters. His point in saying that was, I was so zealous for the purity of God's religion that I persecuted those I thought were contaminating it. That's, that's the point he was trying to get across. F.F. F. Bruce says, if Stephen argued, the new has come, therefore the old must go. Paul, for his part, argued, the old must stay, therefore the new must go. Hence the uncompromising rigor with which he threw himself into the work of repression. As Paul later said to the Jews, to him a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block. Crucifixion was a pronouncement of God's curse upon someone. For anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse, as we read in Deuteronomy 21. Thus, anyone who is saying that the Messiah had been crucified was speaking blasphemy and must be put to death, lest the Lord send a blasphemous nation back into exile. So Paul's zeal to stamp out early Christians was apparently born out of a deep devotion to the law as he understood it. So he was a complex individual. In addition to being a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was also a Roman citizen. And as was noted in the last lesson, Paul used his Roman citizenship for the spread of the gospel. And it should be noted that Roman citizenship wasn't something to be taken lightly. Uh, the Romans did not confer Roman citizenship on just anyone. Only a small percentage of people who lived within the Roman Empire actually possessed this privilege. Paul's Roman citizenship was inherited from his family. In Acts 22, he claims, I was born a citizen. Uh, it could have been perhaps uh, from a result of some deed of service uh, performed by his father or grandfather for, for the Romans. But however it was achieved, Paul's Roman citizenship was an important and absolutely providential qualification for his role as a missionary to the Roman Empire. So it's Paul's Roman citizenship that, humanly speaking, drives him to the heart of the Gentile world, uh, so that in God's providence he might fulfill his commission as the apostle to the Gentiles. 
Now, what happened that would change the heart of Saul of Tarsus to cause him to become one of the central figures of the New Testament? To put it succinctly, God intervened in this persecutor's life so that rather than persecuting, he would count it an honor to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. We read the familiar story in Acts 9 following the conversion of the Ethiopian official. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and all those eyes were opened. He saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he, without, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God chose Paul. God converted Paul, and God would use Paul from this moment on to bring the gospel to the nations. And it may be tempting for us to read Paul's conversion and be discouraged that our own story doesn't sound as impressive. But the point is not Paul and certainly not us. The point is that God is expanding his kingdom. He has graciously and mercifully decided to include the likes of Paul and the likes of us to be a part of his kingdom and a part of seeing it expanded even more. So when God converted Paul, he also called him in in a unique way to become an apostle to the Gentiles. There had been 12 apostles, signifying the reconstituted 12 tribes of Israel. And now Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, becomes the 13th apostle. He was called, as we noticed, in an unusual way. Unlike the Jerusalem apostles, he wasn't with the other apostles during Jesus' earthly ministry. But though he was distinct from the other apostles in the manner in which he was called in his experience, he preached the same gospel. He makes this point in Galatians 1. Uh, The gospel that he preached is identical to the gospel the other apostles preached. Not because he received it from them, but because he received it from the same risen Lord Jesus Christ that they did. Now, what made Paul tick? What was his ministry all about? 
three things. The gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ. The church, which is the body of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, he was about God, the glory of Jesus Christ. So throughout Paul's ministry, we see the centrality of the cross in the gospel message. His calling as an apostle was one of proclaiming the gospel. As an apostle, then, he wasn't primarily a pastor. We don't see him in any one place for more than three years. Uh, he offers, of course, that's some pastors nowadays, I guess. Hmm. He offers leadership in the churches until such a time as he can see elders raised up. And he wasn't primarily a theologian, which is strange to think. I mean, he wrote the book of Romans. But he wasn't primarily a theologian, though his writings form much of the basis of our knowledge of God. As an apostle, he was first and foremost a missionary. That is, one who preaches the gospel to those who have not heard it, in order that churches may be established. And in this calling as a missionary, the gospel was central to everything he did. That meant that he subjugated his methods to the gospel. Think of his oft-quoted phrase from 1 Corinthians 9. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The gospel never changes. So Paul's methods change. To present the gospel in a way that is appropriate to the many different locations and cultures that he preached into. And because the gospel was central to the mission, he not only subjugated his methods to the gospel, but even his own comfort and well-being. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul explained that he denied even his rights for the sake of the gospel. It says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessarily is laid up on me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And of course, not being paid was the least of Paul's discomforts. He was shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead. He went hungry, naked, abandoned by friends, imprisoned, and finally, as best we know, executed, all for the sake of the gospel. So, Paul prioritized the spread of the gospel above his methods, above his comfort, and he was all about the gospel. So when we look through his letters, we see that when the integrity of the gospel message is in danger, Paul becomes his most ferocious. False teachers he called savage wolves to the Ephesian elders. Those who had preached a gospel to the Galatian churches other than what they received from Paul, even from an angel of heaven, Paul prays that they might be eternally condemned, damned to hell. He suggested that those who had teached the circumcision was required for salvation... Uh, suggesting that salvation was by God's grace and our compliance, he suggested that they should all go the they should go all the way and emasculate themselves. I love yeah, I love Paul. Uh, and when the Corinthians 
Corinthian church persisted in fellowship with a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, defaming the reputation of the gospel, Paul told them to hand, him, hand that man over to Satan. Paul cared a lot about love, as we'll see in a moment, but he fought like a lion when the gospel was at stake. He was all about the gospel, so his letters are full of passion, at times vitriolic almost, when the gospel is threatened. And they soar to unbelievable heights when Paul describes the beauty of the gospel. In Titus, he says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and, and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. But secondly, first, primarily, he was all about the gospel. Secondly, Paul was all about the church, the body of Christ. And particularly, in particular, the unity of the church. When you read in the book of Acts that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, one Im implication of that is clear from the outset. He will physically take on the message, take the message to the Roman Empire. But a second implication emerges as his ministry matures. Paul is the one the Lord uses to most comprehensively grasp the implications of the gospel for the unity of Jew and Gentile uh, within the local church. Peter, even after the vision in Acts 10, doesn't live out the implications of the gospel to the removal of division between Jew and Gentile. So Paul rebukes him to his face in Antioch. In Galatians 2, Paul says, but When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul sees that since justification is by faith rather than uh, ritual or ethnicity, that means that all the barriers that were there under the Old Covenant where people had to align themselves to the ethnic people of God if they were to receive God's blessings had been permanent, permanently removed at the cross. See how Paul moves from the idea of salvation by grace through faith straight into the removal of the great divide between Jew and Gentile in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So Paul understood that at his core, uh, Paul understood at his core that unity within the local church was a critical implication of the gospel. So he was all about the gospel. He was all about the local church, two sides of the same coin. After all, it was his master, Jesus, who had said, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this idea of love, of unity for the sake of the gospel absolutely covers Paul's letters. So, Paul is about the gospel. Paul is about the local church. But what drove his passion uh, behind both of those things? It was his passion for God's glory. What drove Paul's theology, the heart of his message, was the same thing that is the very center of the Bible. Paul's theology was marked by a commitment to God's glory. Romans 1.5 through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. It is the glory of God that is Paul's ultimate concern, as it is the ultimate concern or should be the ultimate concern of every Christian. If we think of justification by faith as the center of Paul's theology, we fail to recognize the one who justifies as more central than the justification he offers then we fail to recognize that the whole purpose of justification is reconciliation with God. So God is the author of justification, and God is the goal of justification. Or if we only pay attention to the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, which is another idea central to Paul's thought, then we are forgetting that the promises to Abraham are about the blessings of God. And so the God whose approval we need is even more significant than the coming of that approval. While it is true to say that the spread of the gospel is Paul's passion, the point of that gospel message is God himself. The value of the gospel is that it is the message of how sinners, both Jews and Gentiles, can be reconciled to God and live with him forever. Christ is the exact representation of God's glory. Salvation brings praise to God's glory. Eschatology is the hope of God's glory. The church is the display of God's glory. It is all ultimately about God's glory. The things that Paul cared about, the gospel and the church, can in their own way substitute for God himself. We can be so caught up in winning souls that it becomes about our efforts, not God's glory. We can be so caught up with sacrificial service in the local church that it becomes about our own efforts, not God's glory. And so this last and greatest passion of Paul's is critical if we are to maintain a balanced and godly focus as we glean the great wealth that there is in his epistles.
So what did he write? Well, understanding Paul as a missionary rather than primarily a pastor or a theologian helps us to understand the nature of the letters that he writes. His concern is the missionary's concern to ensure that the churches are well-founded on the gospel. He doesn't write exhaustively everything that we need to know about Jesus. He often writes letters that highlight places where Paul perceived the gospel, and therefore the church, to be under attack. His missionary work would be in vain unless those who had come to faith under his ministry persisted in the faith. So his letters are primarily about explaining the gospel, connecting that with how our life should be viewed corporately as a local church, all the while extolling God for his glory in the gospel and in the church. Getting this perspective right is essential if we were to read his letters as he wrote them. Excuse me. And not turn them into legalistic do's and don'ts for the Christian life. So, he writes Galatians because another gospel is being accepted. He writes 1 Corinthians because divisions are undermining the gospel. He writes Ephesians because he is concerned that the gospel be displayed. He writes Colossians because the gospel is getting affirmed but left in the background and marginalized. He writes the pastoral epistles because he is concerned that the gospel be passed on. He writes Philemon because he wants the gospel to transform social attitudes. We see in his writing that practical Christian instruction is never divorced from the gospel and truth about who God is. In Romans, most of the book is devoted to explaining and magnifying the gospel. Only after significant gospel meditation, Paul turns to practical instruction for what righteous living looks like. So gospel understanding and gospel belief produces gospel living, never the other way around. Yet, you see the same pattern in almost all of his letters. The gospel on the one hand, life together as Christians on the other. Descriptive sentences in the first half, imperative verbs in the second. Neither makes sense without the other. Gospel theology without corporate witness is worthless, like the demons who believe and shudder from the book of James. Because that belief in truth has not been taken hold of with faith, that displays itself in works. And imperative verbs without the gospel? Well, the old covenant, that as Paul writes the Corinthians, brought death. So even letters like 1 Corinthians, which is known for the practical admonition uh, that Paul gives to the church, he begins by saying in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we should be careful when we read and apply the letters of Paul. It can be easy to skip the doctrinal sections and go straight to the practical advice for Christian living that Paul seems to be dispensing. Yet if that is how we read our New Testament, we're going to miss the whole point. The point of Paul and every other writer is not to provide the new ethical manual for Christianity but to further explain the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As soon as we separate the gospel from the things we consider more practical, we've lost the purpose of these books. So when you read Ephesians 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Be considering that in instruction through the lens of Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then the greatest two words in all of scripture that should make you go, but God. Such an awesome, great, great passage here. But God, those words change our eternal destiny. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Man, what a great passage. We don't clean up our speech because it makes God happier with us, nor do we have the ability to speak perfectly regardless of our motivation. No, our language is increasingly characterized by grace-infused words because our hearts have been transformed by God's grace through Christ Jesus. Never read Paul or any of your Bible without this perspective. And it can be easy to think of all those imperatives as basically about me and my obedience, but they're not. It is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it is our life corporately that is at the center of Paul's focus. Read these books to understand the corporate implications of the gospel. So as we, as we consider Paul's letters in the coming lessons, we need to have the backdrop of his life, ministry, and theology in view. We should be asking ourselves certain questions. Are we ultimately concerned about God's glory? Do the uses of our time, money, energy, and words proclaim that God's glory in Christ is what we care about? To what extent are our lives and decisions driven by the one overarching concern of how we can further the ministry of the gospel? We're going to see in Paul's letters a great resource for evaluating ways in which the centrality of the gospel might have been displaced in our own lives. So are there any questions or comments, thoughts? All right. Let's take a All right. We're going to start with a little bit of light reading. The Book of Romans. Oh, because it sheds light, yes. <laughs> so, At last meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. 
This is what Martin Luther said in response to his study of the book of Romans. <laughs> oh, yours says Maiden Luther? Oh, my notes say Martin. That's, that's funny. Uh, a study which focused this anguished monk on the words of Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Later, Luther would write a full commentary on the book of Romans. In the preface to that commentary, he writes, This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while, not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. So written around 57 AD uh, by the Apostle Paul, uh, the book of Romans was written to a Christian church in the capital of the world's most powerful empire. Now, apparently the church was established by a group of believers not known to us. Some scholars suggest that Jew and Gentile Christians who converted to faith in Christ in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost might have founded the church. And despite the lack of well-known leadership, the church seemed to be growing at the writing of this letter. In verse 8 of chapter 1, we're told that the church's faith was reported all over the world. In chapter 16, uh, Paul says that their obedience was known to all. Paul seems to have had several goals in writing the letter. He wants to commend them for their faith. Uh, he wants to let them know of his hopes to visit them personally. He wants to gain their support in a planned visit to Spain uh, and ensure that they were firmly grounded in the gospel. It's this last purpose that, that flavors the whole book. And it's why Romans is a classic statement on the Christian faith. And perhaps the best place to spend serious study if you want to get your understanding of the gospel straight. The book is a sustained logical treatise on the gospel, its implications, answers to objections of that gospel. The organizing central theme to Romans is justification by faith alone. So before we go through the book, we need to ask the question, what does Paul mean by justification? It is a crucial question for understanding the book. Justification is a, a legal term. Uh, that means declared righteous. When you stand before God on the last day, what will be his verdict on your life? Will he declare you guilty or will he declare you righteous? Our great need is to be declared righteous on that last day. Our great need is to be justified. So what we'll do for the rest of our study in Romans is simply walk through the argument that Paul builds in this book about justification. If you're familiar with this book, as I assume you are, uh, my prayer is that by reviewing it as one grand narrative of logic, you'll be able to understand more fully how all these pieces fit together. So justification <coughs> by faith alone is necessary. We all deserve God's wrath. The letter begins with Paul's usual greeting and prayer of praise to God for the Romans' faith. But the theme of the gospel that Paul will expand, will expand through the book is prevalent right from the beginning. Verses 1 through 3, 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son. And then in verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul summarizes this gospel as being a, right, being a righteousness or justification that is by faith. Every religion, every person is geared towards addressing what they believe to be the biggest problem facing man. In Islam, we face the problem of ignorance. We are ignorant of Allah's will. If only people would read and follow the Quran, then this ignorance would be removed. In Buddhism, the big problem is attachment to this world. If only we can attain detachment, then our sorrow will be removed and bliss achieved. Secular humanism, for them, intolerance is the problem. If only we could affirm each other. In the words of Rodney King, can't we all just get along? I think most people, well, anyhow, might remember. Yeah, <laughs> we're a little older. Uh, if only we could affirm each other, then the problem would be removed. And then first century Judaism, the problem was disobedience. What was needed was a radical commitment to the law of God that would make God favorable toward us. And the first three chapters of Romans are crucial for understanding our greatest problem and greatest need. The problem is not ignorance. Everyone knows enough about God to know they should honor him. Verses 18 and 20 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We are not merely ignorant of the truth. We hate the truth that God is God, so we suppress it. So the problem that we have is God himself. Our problem is the loving, perfect, holy, all-powerful God is in fact our enemy. As Paul says, <coughs> the wrath of God is being revealed. Against whom? Against the ungodly. But not only is the wrath of God being revealed uh, today, Paul goes on to say in chapter 2 verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So who are the ungodly who are under God's wrath? Paul tells us there are two kinds of people. Chapter 2, he says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Yet by chapter 3, Paul shows that none of us are persistent enough in doing good. He says in verses 9 through 12, What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Justification by faith alone is necessary because no one can be justified by their works. Our works will only serve to condemn us. But the great news of Romans and of the gospel is that justification by faith alone is not only necessary, it is sufficient. There is a way that we can be declared right with God that is not dependent upon our actions. So justification by faith alone is sufficient, but by God's grace may be justified through faith because of Christ's sacrifice for us. So John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress agreed early in the story that the main character named Christian, subtle, subtle, wasn't it, uh, feels the weight, <laughs> uh, feels the weight of his sin before God and knows he needs to be justified. He needs to be saved. Christian sees Mount Sinai, which represents God's law, and he runs over to it, hoping to climb it and remove the weight of sin from his back. From a distance, the mountain looks easy enough to climb, but as he starts to ascend, he finds it steeper than he expected. Uh, and he continues, yet it gets steeper and steeper, until finally the, the hill curves over on top of him. <coughs> Christian discovers that justification can't be found on Mount Sinai. He cannot get to salvation by the law. So he descends from the mountain. Only then, despairing of the law, does Christian turn around and find the gate that leads to salvation. And the gate is Christ. This analogy, this allegory from Pilgrim's Progress represents exactly what Paul is spelling out for us in chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So none of us can earn God's favor through our own efforts. Uh, any attempt at justification before God that does not go through the gate of Christ will result in frustration today and separation from God eternally. Paul tells us that Jesus was presented as a propitiation, a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. As we have seen, God's wrath is the great problem we all face. We need to be justified in order to not face God's wrath. We all deserve to face God's wrath eternally. Yet God sent his son so that he might bear the righteous anger and punishment that people like us deserve. Now there are two places where God's righteous anger can be satisfied. In hell, where God pays us back for what we have done. Or on the cross, where Jesus willingly takes the punishment for what we have done. Because our sins are against an infinitely holy God, only Christ's sacrifice will be sufficient. Apart from Christ, our payback to God will be infinite. And justification by faith alone did not begin in the New Testament. This is how God has always done things, as we read, we'll read in chapter 4. After summarizing the good news of the sufficiency of Christ to take away God's wrath toward our sins... Paul turns next to an obvious objection of justification by faith alone. Is it really biblical? Does this tie in with the dealings of 
God with his people in the Old Testament? The short answer is, yes, it does. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't justified when he was circumcised or at the end of his life after he had overcome and been willing to sacrifice his son. He was justified the moment that he believed the promise of God, the moment he had faith. Thus, his righteousness must have come not from himself, but in fact from God. Paul seizes on the chronological order of these two events as crucial for understanding the Old Testament and salvation. The example of Abraham and the idea that God credited him with righteousness answers the big question of how an individual's faith in Christ can result in justification. The theological term for crediting righteousness to one who has faith is called imputation. It is an accounting term indicating the transfer of an amount from one account to another. It is through faith in the sacrifice of Christ that this transfer of Christ's righteousness takes place. As we saw in our study of the Old Testament, this is not a new idea. It's been laced through the fabric of redemptive history. So what are the benefits of justification by faith alone in Christ? Chapter 5, they result in eternal life for all who believe. What happens as a result of our obtaining this imputed righteousness? Again, that brings us to chapter 5, where Paul gives consideration to the benefits we have in Christ. We're justified. We have peace with God. We have access to his grace, which preserves us. We have hope of glory. We're able to have an attitude of rejoicing, even in suffering. We experience the love of God poured out into our hearts. We're saved from God's wrath. We are reconciled to God. These benefits of having received Christ's imputed righteousness should fuel our worship and praise of the Lord. Have you spent time praising him for his many benefits which have accrued to you as a result of his work on your behalf? The availability of these benefits in Christ is not merely accessible to certain ethnic or religious groups. In verse 19 of chapter 5 we read, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul explains that in the same way that the entire human race was plunged into sin by the one trespass of one man, Adam, likewise the second Adam, that is Christ, serves as a representative before God for the sins of all those who repent and trust in his work. Uh, Some will argue the point of all being made sinners because of Adam's sin. The objection goes along the lines of, uh, I should be responsible for my own standing before God. If I had been there, I might have chosen otherwise. It's not fair that Adam's mistake has impacted everyone. Be careful if you're tempted by this logic, which many of us actually may have kind of thought something along those lines. Oh, if it had been me, it contradicts Scripture's teaching about original sin. And it arrogantly assumes a level of potential personal piety that none of us would have achieved had we been in Adam's place. But beyond the connection to Adam's sin, consider the weight of what Paul is saying. He says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So in other words, if somebody says something like, why should I be held accountable for Adam's sin? Go, you're absolutely right. Why should Jesus be held accountable for your sin as well? Take it on yourself. Good luck. Don't actually say that because that's kind of rude. I'm also heard the argument from an unbeliever. I didn't crucify him. Oh, yeah. Yep, I didn't crucify him. Yep. So, all kinds of remarks and responses could be made. But we'll move on. Uh, when you or someone you're sharing the gospel with is tempted to believe that it's unfair that all mankind is sinful because of Adam's sin, that condemnation and death are the lot of everyone because of that sin, show them the logic of Paul. You think it is unfair that one sin brought condemnation? How gracious is God to allow many trespasses to be covered through the act of one man, Jesus Christ? The other implication of what Paul is saying is the, this, compassion, this comparison of Christ to Adam is that just like we were plunged into sin by Adam, so through Christ, the opportunity to be reconciled to God has been made available to all men. The benefits of justification are not for a privileged few, but for any who have faith alone in the risen Christ. Justification by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. Uh, don't be mistaken, justification by faith alone, but never by faith that is alone. We have been justified by faith alone. No good works, no religious duties or rituals can accomplish this reconciliation to God. No human effort can produce salvation. In the wake of this rich teaching, Paul knows what believers may be tempted to think next. We're no longer constrained by the law in the way Israel seemed to be. So why not take our new place in Christ by faith and then go on sinning that grace may increase? Does the fact that we are declared righteous, not by our own actions, but by those of Jesus, give an incentive to sin? Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Why do we want to be justified? Simply because we want God's wrath removed from us or so we can be reconciled with him? When a husband has sinned against his wife, why does he want her wrath removed from him? Is it because the couch is uncomfortable? Perhaps. <laughs> no. is, it merely, is it merely to remove the pain of someone being angry? No. It's because he loves his wife and he longs to be restored to a loving relationship with her. Thus, justification by faith leads to a more righteous life. By having Jesus as our representative, we have died to sin so that we might live a new and wonderful life with Jesus Christ as Lord. Yet the reality is, we go on sinning. Chapter se chapters 7 and 8 face the reality of ongoing sin, but also the certain hope of final victory for all who believe. Uh, for lack of time, we're going to skip to the good news at the end of the section. Uh, verses 29 and 30 of chapter 8. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The work of God in the salvation of people is outlined here in five key verbs. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. The golden chain, as it's often called. God foreknows in the sense that he knows our personalities, etc. But also in the sense that he foreloves his people. We are told that whom he foreknew, he also predestined. In eternity past, God decided that some would be conformed to the likeness of his son, and that some would be adopted as sons according to the purpose of his will. Hence, those he predestines are also those he calls. This is not the general call of the gospel that demands all to repent and believe, but the effectual call that produces faith in the believer. And the resultant justification and ultimate glorification follow naturally. In this chain of redemption, we see that God works without fail to redeem for himself a people. There are no dropouts. This is great grounds for assurance of salvation. If we have come to receive forgiveness of sins, it is because Jesus has already borne our sin and nothing can take that away, not even our sins as a Christian. Chapter 7 and 8 hold out to us the most marvelous assurance of salvation. Even though we continue to fight against sin in this life, if we have come to believe in Christ, our salvation doesn't depend upon any future unforeseen circumstances. It depends on the promises of God. And then the justification of God to man we see in chapters 9 through 11. Uh, Key, key verse. Does this mean God's promises failed? By no means. God's promises were always intended for those to whom he gave faith. At this point, we see a shift in Paul's argument. Having developed the theology of justification by faith alone in the first eight chapters, Paul now moves his focus to an objection that would surely be in the mind of Jewish Christians, if not others. The objection is this. Does God really keep his promises about salvation? Didn't he make other promises that appear not to have been kept? Didn't he promise salvation to Israel? And yet at that time, Paul is writing, the majority of Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah and therefore had not received salvation. Had God broken his promises? Paul begins to address this objection in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Just because someone is a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that God has promised them salvation, says Paul. We see this right from the call of, call of, right from the call of Abraham. From Abraham's sons, Isaac was chosen, Ishmael wasn't. Isaac's son Jacob was chosen, but not Esau. Have you ever wondered why there is a two-generation gap between Abraham, to whom the promises are given, and Jacob, or Israel, after whom the nation is named? Paul says here that it shows categorically that being a direct physical descendant of Abraham doesn't make someone a recipient of the promises to Abraham. The same is the case throughout Israel's history. <coughs> At the time of Elijah... 
<clears throat> the vast majority of Israel did not trust the promises. Yet within Israel, there was always a faithful remnant, a people within a people who were the true spiritual children of Israel. So God's promises are kept. He keeps them to everyone he made them to, to all who depend upon him in faith. Within this section, we see that this salvation by God's grace brings great glory to God. Salvation isn't a birthright, but something that God works as he chooses for his namesake. Now, a few guidelines as we consider this difficult topic. God has the right to save some and not others. In verses 19 and 21 of chapter 9, uh, we read, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is modeled say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And in thinking about such an immense issue as election, it would be wise of us to humble ourselves and remember that God's ways are well past our finding out. In chapter 11, verses 33 and 36, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In both condemnation and salvation, God reveals both his justice and his mercy in the hardening and the pardoning of sinners. In chapter 9 we read, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory from, for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also uh, from the Gentiles. In no case is anyone given worse than they deserve. And then God has not changed his way of dealing with people, and he continues to maintain a remnant who will believe. All must confess and believe from Abraham to you and me. In chapter 10, verses 9 and 11, we read, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In all this, Paul's effort to justify God is not merely an attempt to win his readers to his way of understanding God. Ultimately, Paul's justification of God in the eyes of sinners comes down to a simple declaration of power, uh, the purposes and the prerogatives of God as God. Paul does not try to persuade so much as he tries to instruct. Uh, he is not interested in placating us, uh, placating us with a rationalization. Such as, will this be okay? Do we have a compromise measure that will pass? No, Paul simply tells us what is true. There is God. There is no other. He alone is God, period. Deal with it and get on. All right. Justification by faith alone produces renewed lives and relationships. 
our justification will produce fruit as individuals, as citizens, and most obviously, as members of Christ's body. Though the major portion of the book is dedicated to theological issues, Paul finishes the book with a practical outworking of gospel truth, uh, individually, civically, or socially, and then corporately within the church, uh, for those justified by faith alone. So individually, we are to live lives in the spirit characterized by freedom and victory over sin. We're no longer to submit our lives to unrighteousness, but to righteousness. We are to be governed by the spirit of God. Accordingly, we're to renew our minds and present our entire selves as sacrifices to God. And moreover, we're to use our spiritual gifts in service to the body. Love, joy, patience, generosity, goodwill toward others, and humility are to mark our lives because of the truth we have embraced in Christ Jesus. Now, civically and socially, we're to live in submission to the authorities established by God. In doing so, we demonstrate our submission to God. Uh, insofar as the government does not coerce us to sin against God. Remember, our primary allegiance and obedience is to God. Uh, and the love of God poured so abundantly into our hearts should also flow from us to those around us. All of the commandments, Paul says, are summed up in one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says in chapter 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now in the church, we are to think of others more highly than we think of ourselves and accept one another. Now, apparently, the Roman church was struggling with some disputes inside the church uh, where more, more mature members were, were wounding less mature members through disputes over dietary laws, special religious observances. So Paul admonishes them to receive one another without quarreling over opinions and to use their liberty to foster peace and mutual edification. Finally, Paul urges the church there to contribute to his missionary efforts to pray for him, and to avoid false doctrines and those who cause divisions. Uh, those who have been justified by faith alone demonstrate this kind of love, a respect for civil authority, love and concern for one another in the church, and individual marks of holiness and righteousness, all because God in Christ has reconciled sinners to himself through the cross and through faith in his blood. So what do we do with this? Well, for starters, use the book of Romans to dwell on the glory of justification by faith alone. This isn't just part of our faith. It is our faith. It deserves all the importance that Paul gives it, not only in this letter, but in all of his letters. Secondly, make sure that you see how this entire book pieces together. Do you love the glorious promises of chapter 8, but think of chapter 9 as the chapter you wish Paul had left out? Are you an uber-reform type who is well-versed in Paul's doctrines of election and reprobation in the middle chapters of the book, but have need to rediscover chapters 1 through 3 how infinitely implausible your salvation is? 
have you become intimately familiar with the impeccable chain of logic that constructs the gospel in chapters 1 through 8, but have rarely spent time in the tragically overlooked chapters on our corporate life together that complete this book? If the beginning is so amazing, don't you think the ending might be equally worthy of intense study? All these things are sin, God's grace, God's choice, our life together, hang together as one divinely inspired letter to Christ's church. Let us work hard to piece together all of what Paul has written for us so that we might know and do in a way that is cognizant, experiential knowledge of such beautiful truth that we have been justified through the death of Jesus. Right. Any questions on the book of Romans? Any comments? Jonas. If you want to uh, study or hear more about you know, above and beyond your studying the book of Romans, John Piper wrote uh, a book called Romans, The Greatest Letter Ever Written. I don't know mm. if anyone's ever heard of it. No. Uh, pretty good. It's only 154 hours long. <laughs> wow. That's, I think the Bible is only like 70, 72 hours. So, for those of you listening uh, that are not here, Jonas is recommending a book by John Piper called uh, The Letter to the Roman. Romans, the greatest letter ever written. And it's, if you listen to it, it's, it's only 154 hours in, in listening. So. Uh, so there you go. All right. Any other questions or comments? Reading suggestions? This momentary marriage. <laughs> this, this momentary marriage. It's probably less less hours on that one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Then we will go ahead and move on to First uh, Corinthians. If you're going to teach on what a church should look like, what body of believers would you choose as your demonstration church, your model church? Uh, you'd probably look to a church that seemed to have the basics down, not a church to whom you'd have to say, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you're not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And yet this is the same group of people to whom Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians uh, about what should characterize a gospel-centered church, he did not address a church that had it all together. In other words, he didn't write it to us. Right? <laughs> That's called a joke. Uh, <laughs> uh, far from it, in fact. But they did have the one thing that would lead them to becoming a healthy church. For all their problems, they had Christ. 
one of the great things about the way the New Testament was written is that some of it is intensely personal. Uh, we not only understand the great truths of God from beautiful books of teaching such as Romans, we also get the opportunity to peek over the apostles' shoulders as they deal with real problems that real churches were facing during the New Testament period. 1 Corinthians is such a letter. Because a complex story of Paul's interaction with this church surrounds these letters, we'll spend a bit more time than usual setting the context of this book. So, location, of course, Corinth. And it was a major city in the day. It was situa situated in Greece on the main route from Rome to the east. It was a center of business and travel, culture, diversity. Uh, much travel came through, much traffic came through Corinth. And any overland traffic going from Athens and northern Greece to the Peloponnesian Peninsula would come through Corinth. Uh, there is also a major port there. Ships would be dragged on rollers four miles over land to take a shortcut from the Ionian Sea to the west in the west to the Aegean in the east. So minus the ships on rollers, Corinth was not unlike modern-day New York City or um, San Francisco, Dubai, London, Hong Kong. Uh, it was one of the major crossroads in the Mediterranean and therefore a strategic place for the gospel. One of the functions of it being a crossroads was that Corinth became a major center for the spreading of ideas and philosophies. Uh, the real celebrities of Corinth were the orators. They would gather wide followings of people, and they would make large sums of money by charging people to hear them to speak. Uh, the worldly wisdom of Corinth was to seek fame and fortune through being an impressive speaker. This culture seems to be the heart of many of the problems of the Corinthian church. Paul had first preached the gospel in Corinth during his second missionary journey that we read about in Acts 18. During this time, he supported himself as a tent maker and lived with Aquila and Priscilla, who had recently moved uh, to Corinth from Rome. And having arrived in the city after being left for dead by a mob in Philippi, Paul came, as he put it, in weakness and fear and with much trembling. In his great love for this people, though, the risen Christ appeared to Paul in a dream and encouraged him to carry on his work in the city. In Acts 18, we read, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack you and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Spurred on by the knowledge of God's elect waiting to come to life through the preaching of the gospel, Paul stayed in Corinth, where many came to trust in Christ. After firmly establishing the church there, Paul left in AD 51 for Jerusalem. Now, after his time in Jerusalem, Paul was soon back at work among the Gentiles. From AD 52 to 55, he enjoyed an enormously fruitful ministry in Ephesus. Uh, meanwhile, back in Corinth, others came to build on the foundation that Paul had left. And these leaders did not appear to be bad leaders, but problems began to arise in Corinth nonetheless. Paul wrote a letter that has since been lost uh, that's referenced in 1 Corinthians 5, but problems continued. It appears that the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter about some of their disagreements, and Paul heard about other problems from some members of Chloe's household. In response to these problems, Paul writes around AD 55 to the Corinthians, focusing on the character and the order of the church of God. How should the church of God reflect to the watching world the character of God? 
the church must be gospel-centered. The gospel is to be the organizing principle of the church. Uh, we read in chapter 1, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those whom, are, whom he had... But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, Paul spends his time writing to the Corinthians, not individually, but corporately, because he believes church is important to the witness of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, we learn from Paul three foundational aspects. And we're going to take these in turn, and they'll give us a thematic overview of the entire letter. A gospel-centered church is to be united, holy, and edifying. So these three words, Paul's first letter uh, to Corinthians, uh, they're a blueprint also for every Christian's involvement uh, in the local church today. So a gospel-centered church is to be united. One of Paul's primary motivations for writing this letter is to counter the partisan spirituality uh, and profound division among the members of the church. All right. <laughs> so uh, Paul addresses fi uh, rival allegiances given to various teachers. These factions seem to boast of their superior wisdom. So Paul writes passionately about the difference between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. He says in chapter 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise by human standards. <laughs> I love that. Uh, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So the unity that the kingdom promotes finds its basis in the cross of Jesus Christ, in the gospel, not in the eloquence of human words or in the influence of position or the force of a human personality. So if you tend to attend your church because of your pastor, you're wrongly motivated, and time is going to reveal that. The pastor will disappoint you. Even if he never disappoints you, he will someday die. Your faith cannot be built upon a person. Happy thoughts, everybody. <laughs> uh, your faith cannot be built upon a person. True faith is built upon God and Jesus Christ. We should only boast in Jesus Christ because he is our redemption and our wisdom. He alone is worthy of our first allegiance and boasting. Any true gospel preacher will point men and women to Christ alone and not to himself. That's the first key to unity that we see in this letter. A focus on Christ alone is the answer. Secondly, Paul shows that this unity is a sign of worldliness uh, with its quarreling and arguing. Uh, the root cause of the church's division was and continues to be worldliness and immaturity. In chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, it says, For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving in an only human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? 
A third key to unity is something we find in Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper, the very place where unity should be most clearly expressed. Instead, Paul exhorted the Corinthians to remember that they were the body of Christ, uh, built up by the diversity of spiritual gifts within the church. Uh, And while I'm guessing that most of us are not concerned with divisions between Jews and Gentiles today, uh, what kind of divisions might be present uh, in our attitudes and our actions toward one toward one another? Uh, when churches divide for fleshly reasons, they identify themselves as something other than Christ. Uh, they become a church of modern music, or the church of only hymns, or the church of this pastor, or the church of homeschoolers, or the church of the Democrats, or the church of the blue carpet. Uh, Yeah, all kinds of really stupid reasons. As soon as this happens, they are no longer the Church of Jesus Christ. Are there certain people that you hesitate to spend time with or don't want to spend time with because of their differences with you? The gospel is made most of when we are united to people unlike ourselves, when that unity is expressed in relation of the gospel. That doesn't mean that you can't have friends who... uh, are like you, that are like you, uh, similar stations of life. The problem is when when all of the people that we spend time with or minister toward are just like us. Uh, Churches that will only orient themselves toward one type of person are dividing the body of Christ and misrepresenting what it means to be a gospel-centered church. A fourth strand of teaching on the unity in the church is that we must love one another without selfishness. Love and consideration for others should govern what we do. Chapter 8, weak and strong. Chapter 9, Paul's personal rights conceded for the sake of others who need the gospel. Chapter 10, believers' freedom not to cause others to stumble. Uh, This concern uh, for others is crucial in a Christian church. And this is the context for perhaps the most famous section of the book, chapter 13, where we read of the supremacy of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm sure it's familiar to most of us that love is all about the quality of the interaction with others. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not boasting. It's not proud, not rude, not self-seeking. And of the wonderful gifts we receive from God, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. If we hold on to the gospel and unite around that, we will not have lived in vain. That's the first theme we see running through this book, unity. And also that the gospel-centered church is to be holy. At the very beginning of the letter, Paul reminded the church of its call to be holy and that it is Christ who makes us holy. Paul reminds us that the sexually immoral and others who are impure will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the church, the church is to be pure, remembering that it was saved from such impurity. One of the significant problems that Paul addressed in the Corinthian church was an act of blatant immorality to which the church was not responding. Uh, The church was associated with a widely rumored uh, instance of incest a sin that was even shocking among the pagans in that, in that area. The church astonishingly was proud because they thought accepting the offender showed their liberty. We'll move on. 
Uh, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, he says in beginning of chapter 5, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Notice who Paul berates for this heinous sin. He doesn't address the sinner, but the church for doing nothing about it. This case is representative not of a small disease in the Corinthian church. The church's own immune system in relation to sin has been compromised. Underscoring this call to holiness, Paul offers a warning from Israel's history. Uh, the beginning, uh, beginning well is no guarantee of perseverance in the faith. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, we read, For I want you to know, brothers, that all our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. You noticing a key word there? The word, the. All right. The word all. Uh, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some, of, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall." So he finishes with a reminder that when interacting with the world, everything may be permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Uh, we should seek to live circumspectly, watching our lives carefully, rather than living in a wanton and unholy manner. We need to practice church discipline with love. One tool or method that the Lord has given us for maintaining the organization of the holiness of the kingdom is biblical church discipline. So the apostle warns in chapter 5, verse 6, Do you not know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? When we encounter public sins uh, of the seriousness referenced here, we are not to think of ourselves um, kind or loving if we spare people's feelings, but fail to act on behalf of that person's soul. Uh, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are, to deliver, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Whenever we exercise church discipline, we do so to make it clear to someone that they are not living like a Christian and thus should be concerned for their salvation. We should always exercise discipline with tender love and concern for that person. This is one of the most solemn acts we ever undertake as a local body. But it is central to the preservation of holiness and the glory of God in the church. We should also keep in mind 
that church discipline goes beyond the public cases that we consider corporately. Every relationship you have within the church has the opportunity to be one that is characterized by loving discipline. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Now, as we do these things, we are exercising discipline among each other that encourages holiness. Consider the two things we've thought about so far, unity and holiness. Uh, Often in churches today, we see our job as balancing between them. Uh, We don't address a particular sin in the congregation for fear of fracturing unity. On the other hand, there are some whose zeal for holiness comes at the expense of unity. But Paul sees unity and holiness as going hand in hand. Uh, If we begin to tolerate unrepentant sin in the church, problems with unity will follow. Uh, The separation the Corinthians were supposed to experience was a separation from the world. Instead, they tolerated sin, thus encouraging internal division and experiencing a separation from each other. On the other hand, Paul makes it clear that even when dealing with issues we might consider to be moral, such as eating meat sacrificed to idols, we must handle these with unity at the forefront of our attention. Holiness and unity together. That's our calling as a church. And that quite naturally brings us to the third theme in the letter. The gospel-centered church is to be edifying. It's interesting to see how Paul deals with a host of problems. He does so in such a way (coughs) that encourages the Corinthians to act in ways that edify each other. Uh, One strategy Paul uses is to encourage us to give up our rights. Uh, Throughout the letter, Paul addresses selfishness of one sort or the other in the church. The selfishness or self-centeredness gave rise to the partisan factions that we mentioned earlier. Um, It gave rise to disarray in the use of gifts, uh, a failure to consider others in a myriad of ways, um, to thwart, uh, he encourages us to give up our rights, to thwart the confusing effects of disorder and to get to its very root. Paul directed uh, the members of the Corinthian church to use their liberty in ways that serve and care for others. For example, uh, consider Paul's instructions regarding eating, eating food sacrificed to idols that we mentioned in chapter 8. Paul reasoned that because an idol, idol literally is nothing, and there is only one true God, and that all things are from him and for him, we're free to eat what we will because food does not commend us or bring us near to God. However, there are those who are weaker in conscience uh, who may be led into sin because they do not understand the freedom available in Christ. Uh, And so Paul says that our exercise of freedom then becomes a stumbling block to the weak. In that case, our decision to eat is actually a sin against your brother for whom Christ died. And then because of that, it is a sin against Christ. So we are to forego certain things in order that those observing us, particularly those weaker in knowledge, uh, will not be harmed and order will be maintained. Paul describes his own ministry as an example of this general principle that we should forego our rights for the sake of the weaker Christian. 
throughout the letter, uh, Paul's focus is on resolving uh, differences and problems with an eye toward preserving order and loving one another rather than protecting our perceived rights. So in a culture like Corinth or Topeka, which is just as much of a booming metropolis, uh, where everyone is trying to safeguard their own reputation and get whatever they can for themselves, uh, this laying aside of my rights for the sake of others is a powerful display of the gospel because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. The beauty of the cross is in the humility of the one who voluntarily forsook heaven for our good, though he had every right to leave us in our sins. From the perspective of a pastor, it becomes clear over time uh, which brothers and sisters in a church have an edifying effect on those around them. They don't need to be in charge of a ministry. They don't need to call the shots. You can just watch God gradually commit different ministries and opportunities into the hands of certain people uh, because they love him. They're willing to quietly give themselves in love for others and without particular concern that they uh, be right or be recognized. And we should all strive to be this type of Christian, not those looking to protect our reputation or our turf, uh, but those who are quietly and lovingly serving one another. Another strategy that Paul uses is to appeal to our role as a church as imagining, as imaging Christ. Uh, you see this especially in the set of problems that, Paul's de- that Paul deals with in this letter that have to do with the public meetings of the church, including the, roles, uh, the role of men and women in the church, abuse of the Lord's Supper, the exercise of spiritual gifts, especially those that seem more spectacular. Um, and the church had become so disorderly, Paul said their public meetings do more harm than good. So the church is instructed to honor the order of headship established by God. That God is the head of all. Christ is the head of every man. The husband is the head of the wife. Uh, not, of, not every man of every woman. Husband is the head of the wife. Even though neither man nor woman is independent of the other in Christ. And uh, at the Lord's Supper... Divisions are to be put away, and we are to wait upon one another so that we might remember the Lord's death in unison. The last of these problems associated with the public meetings of the church was the use of spiritual gifts. Uh, Linked to the desire to be impressive was the Corinthian infatuation with the gift of tongues, and this played itself out in two ways, both of which undermined the health and growth of the whole church. First, it made those who didn't speak in tongues wonder whether there really was a place for them in the congregation at all. And secondly, it made those who had the gift of tongues feel super spiritual and important. And so how did Paul address this? Not much has changed, no. Uh, Remember the words that Jesus spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul knew that Jesus was so identified with Christians that he would call them me. So Paul uses the image of the body of Christ to show how ludicrous and how Christ dishonoring their infatuation with one gift over another was. In 1227 he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually 
members of it. To the person who doubts his inclusion in the body because he doesn't have a gift he covets, Paul says, For the body does not consist, consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So to the more uh, spiritual Christian who thought that only he counted in the body because of his impressive gift, Paul goes on to say, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. As a result, Paul's guiding principle for spiritual gifts is one of edification. Chapter 14, he says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So do you have a tendency to look down on those who don't have the gifts that you do? They are gifts, not self-developed abilities. They don't originate with you. You didn't make them. Why should you feel proud about them? They're not given to you for your glory, but for the good of the whole church and thus the glory of God. So whatever gifts we have, we should be humbled and we should see them as a stewardship to be spent on the good of others, which is exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter, that it is a stewardship of God's grace when we use our gifts. The point in the use of spiritual gifts, regardless of whatever they may be, is edification, not merely of the individual exercising the gift, but of the whole body. When was the last time you came to a service with the edification of others the primary concern of your heart? Or do you usually anticipate what you personally will find most helpful? Uh, like whether a song, a prayer, or a message moves you, stirs you, uh, whether, whether you get out on time. Oh, is Pastor John going to preach for 48 minutes or 43 minutes? Or two hours and 16 minutes. Um, or whether you speak to the right people afterward. Today I'll be talking a long time. Uh, whether you speak to the right people afterward. When was the last time you were genuinely concerned about the edification of those around you? Not in the sense of whether they liked this or that song, but in the sense of whether or not they are being built up in the faith. Uh, do you seek out your close friends after the service? Or do you look around for, for visitors and unfamiliar faces? Uh, do you pray before and during the service that God would particularly use the time you have together on Sunday as a church family to work in the hearts of both you and others? We need to pray that our church will continue to be a place where edification of others and not self-promotion is sought after by each one of us because we have been bought by the blood of Christ to become his body. So the gospel-centered church is to be characterized by unity, holiness, and edification. In all of these things, we are not to think like the world. We are to have the gospel as the organizing principle in our lives. 
uh, it might be helpful to ask ourselves a few questions to help us evaluate areas we need to grow in our understanding and our actions. Do we solve conflicts or do we contribute to them? Do we resist the temptation to boast uh, in other human beings or do we yield to it? Are we absolutely pure in our relationship with the other sex or are we calculating and compromising? Are we using our spiritual gifts to build up all the members of the Christian community or are we hoarding our gifts or using them for our own selfish advantage? Are our actions motivated by love and a desire to edify others or by some other inferior motivation? Are we givers or takers? Do you come to church merely to consume? Let's consider these things uh, for our own lives and let us pray for them fervently for our church. Yes. Yeah, no doubt. It's actually a bunch of, I think it's a bunch of sermons on Romans, is what it is. I was going to say, I look for the audio and the Google Playbooks, it's not there. Yeah. I was going to ask before they can find it. Yeah, it's on Audible. All right. Got it. I already hit record, so I'll go ahead and start. You got. Sponsored by Audible. Sponsored by Audible. But since they can't hear you on the recording, you. Mean just keep on with your conversation. So, <laughs> it was 1960. John F. Kennedy was in a heated battle for the presidency with Richard Nixon. On the evening of September 26th, the two candidates faced one another in a debate for the ages. Much like the public debates that have been in election season standards for many years, with one key difference. This time, they wore boxing gloves. Oh, no, sorry, it says this debate was on live television. Oh, okay, that was different. It was seen by 80 million people. Those who listened on the radio, they thought Nixon was the winner. Those who saw it on TV, well, Kennedy, by a long shot. Yeah, yeah, his appearance, yep. The young senator appeared tanned, rested, and composed. In contrast to the sweaty and nervous Vice President Nixon. America had entered the television age. Well, regardless of whether you prefer Nixon or Kennedy, this historical tidbit points us to something that humans in a fallen world have struggled with throughout all time. The tendency to be deceived by appearances. While this temptation may seem particularly potent in our media age, Things weren't so different in the church in the city of Corinth. We can't escape appearances, but it's what's beneath the surface that matters. And that's the point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians. God's kingdom isn't made visible by strength and success. Rather, God's kingdom is the kingdom of the weak. So, as we discussed when we looked at 1 Corinthians, Corinth was an important city. Both land and sea traffic came through Corinth. So it was one of the major commercial and philosophical centers of the first century. After writing 1 Corinthians, Paul intended to eventually visit Corinth. But he was in no hurry to leave a profitable work in Ephesus, so he sent Timothy to bring a report back on how the church responded to his letter. And Timothy arrived to chaos and disarray in the church. The letter of 1 Corinthians seems not to have done the good that Paul intended for it. 
Uh, upon hearing of the church's condition, Paul set out for Corinth. A visit that he had warned them in 1 Corinthians 4.21 would be painful if he had to make it. Kind of reminds me of when I can hear one of the kids upsetting or disobeying, and I tell one of the others, would you go tell them that I said, knock it off? And then they don't knock it off. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm coming. I mean, that was that kind of a same thing there. Uh, so <clears throat> during his stay, some self-appointed leaders of the church who may have called themselves apostles attacked him in deeply insulting ways. So Paul apparently felt this visit to be a complete fiasco. Uh, he left, hoping that his departure would bring the Corinthians to their senses. And this decision left him open to charges of being fickle and uncaring. But Paul wasn't ready to let the gospel witness of this church be smothered. He wrote yet another letter out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, as he described in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This letter, which we don't have, was delivered by Titus. It assured the Corinthians of his love for them, but also had stern words of rebuke. So it was Corinthians 1.5. That, that's what that was. And we don't have it. Yes, we have third, second Corinthians is, yeah, so first Corinthians is actually second Corinthians, and second Corinthians is fourth, so, get your, yes. Of course, with inflation, it's now seventh and eighth. So, despite the turmoil in the church, uh, Paul asked Titus uh, with, re- tasked Titus with receiving a collection from the Corinthians, for the impoverished church in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Paul left Ephesus after a riot and went to Macedonia to wait for Titus. Uh, He was afraid that his severe letter had hurt the Corinthians, but Titus brought back a good report and his concern turned to joy. You read in 2 Corinthians 7, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So in response to this good news from Titus, Paul penned 2 Corinthians, probably around AD 56, a year or so after he had written 1 Corinthians. In the first nine chapters, you can feel his joy at a relationship healed and his relief that the worst for the Corinthian church seems to be over. The church had repented, and it appears from chapter 2, verse 6, that an opponent of the gospel may have been disciplined by the church. But before sending off the letter, Paul must have received some more disturbing news from Corinth. It seems that once again, the so-called super-apostles were challenging his authority, and ultimately, the gospel. As a result, 2 Corinthians Corinthians ends with more strong rebukes and warnings for the church. Now, Paul writes the second epistle to the Corinthians for public, personal, and practical reasons. First, Paul was concerned about the public conduct of some of the Corinthian members of the church. So Paul wrote to better explain some of the key doctrines of the faith and to give instruction and warning to some members of the church. Uh, Second, Paul was personally criticized, so he wrote to defend his ministry, his authority, and personal integrity. 
Third, Paul had practical concerns for the church at, uh, in Jerusalem. So he wrote to solicit funds for the relief project going on there. Paul addresses all these concerns through his main message about the kingdom of God. The kingdom, he says, is not about us exerting our own personal strength, but in weakness, depending upon the Lord. As Jesus says in chapter 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Those who would be deceived by Paul's opponents because of their apparent strength would miss the true nature of the kingdom. Now, for the rest of our study in 2 Corinthians, we're going to consider what characterizes this kingdom. Specifically, we're going to look at three themes about the true nature of the kingdom that run through this letter. Kingdom apostles display God's power and weakness. The citizens of the kingdom display God's generosity and weakness. And the churches of the kingdom display God's grace and weakness. So God's kingdom apostles display God's power and weakness. The Corinthian church needed weak apostles like Paul, not so-called super apostles. The defense of Paul's apostleship takes up a large part of the book, including most of the first six chapters and chapters 10 through 12. This is not because Paul is some kind of self-promoting egoist. Rather, it's because in being drawn away from Paul, the Corinthians are being drawn toward those who are egotistical. And what is worse, those who do not have the apostolic commission from Jesus that Paul, that, uh, Paul had. Those who are opposed to Paul seem to be taking advantage of three aspects of Paul's apostleship that they suggested exposed Paul as untrustworthy. First, Paul had planned to visit the Corinthians again, but in the end decided not to. His critics were claiming that this was because he was fickle. We hear echoes of their criticism in uh, 117. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul explains that once he had realized that there were real problems with the church in Corinth, a quick, friendly visit wouldn't have been appropriate. And a quick, stern visit wouldn't have been kind or encouraging. So he thought it would be better for the Corinthians if he not visit them until things had been cleared up. Uh, we see this in chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Second, his critics accused him of being harsh. They pointed to the severe letter that Paul had written about a matter of discipline. The church seems to have misunderstood the letter, thinking that the discipline was to be permanent. But Paul encourages them in chapter 2 to be reconciled with the brother who had sinned and now repented. And then third, the so-called super apostles pointed out that Paul lacked credentials. Paul had none of the letter of recommend, letters of recommendation from other communities that itinerant preachers in this time would use to prove that they were legit. Paul, for his part, insisted that worldly com commendation uh, has no place in Christian ministry. Huh. So chapter 3, 1 through 2. Uh, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Far better than recommendation letters, 
the faith of the Corinthian people showed that Paul's ministry was blessed of God. Most significantly, Paul's major defense of his apostleship comes not through responding to petty accusations, but simply through laying out a positive vision of the ministry of an apostle, which he had carried out faithfully, but of which the self-styled super-apostles had fallen far short. And here we have one of the clearest, most valuable sections of teaching on church leadership in the entire Bible. Paul shows us not just what makes a true apostle, but what sort of ministry our own church should pray and strive for. So here are a few things that Paul teaches us about Christian ministry and how it displays God's power in our weakness. First, the glory of the ministry is the glory of the gospel, not the glory of human appreciation. In verses 14 through 17 of chapter 2, uh, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and though and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. He was sufficient for these things, for we are not, like so many uh, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. In other words, proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ is glorious, regardless of whether people uh, reject or embrace it. Uh, And then two, power for this ministry doesn't come from human ability, but from God's grace. He says in chapter three, such is the confidence that we have through Christ Jesus toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then the focus of the ministry is not the messenger, but the subject of his message, the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, we read, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then the concern of kingdom ministry is the heart, not outward appearances. Also in chapter 4 we read, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Then the agent of kingdom ministry is God. We're only ambassadors. God reconciles sinners to himself using the message of the gospel. Chapter 5 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Then the result of kingdom ministry is changed lives. 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he says in chapter 6. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And then in chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So that is what the ministry of a weak apostle looks like. It's not about outward appearances, but spiritual realities. The reality of God glorifying himself by showering grace upon undeserving weak sinners like us. And then Paul solidifies his case toward the end of the letter. Apparently, Paul's opponents believed that if a teacher was popular, successful, and lived a life of good fortune, then his message must be true. How can anyone driving a BMW be wrong, right? Yeah. So Paul, in contrast, seemed like a real loser. Loser! He was always getting beaten up, put in prison, chased out of cities... You can also, you, know, you can almost hear the super apostles making fun of him. What a failure. Who would listen to someone who suffers so much? Maybe he's cursed. For their part, the super apostles would pile up lists of all the achievements and qualifications they hoped would impress their audience. Paul engages in the same type, type of argumentation in these last chapters. He amasses a giant pool of evidence, citing example after example to make his case. Except everything he lists is utterly unimpressive. From pain to sickness to shipwrecks to persecution to being tormented by demons to being the famous uh, thorn in the flesh, Paul's resume is a catalog of weakness. He's boasting, but he's boasting like a fool from the, in the world's eyes. Because as he says in chapter 11, verse 30, he will only boast in the things that show the glory of Christ and his own weakness. This is a good question for us to consider. Do we value the same things the world values? Should we choose a church primarily because we like the way a pastor sounds, his pedigree, his people skills? Or do we choose a church based primarily on the message being preached, even if the messenger is unimpressive? Paul is telling us not to put any credence into appearances, but instead to look for the work of the Spirit in changed hearts. Do you see how this informs us and how we can pray for our elders? Lord, even though they are so unimpressive in their appearances. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. They would not put their trust in worldly wisdom, in money, or impressive achievements, but that they would consider all of that to be worthless compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, and pray that they would teach with the wisdom that comes only from him. So the weakness of the kingdom is demonstrated in the apparent deficiencies of Paul when compared to the super apostles, but that's not all. It also demonstrated by the true citizens is also demonstrated by the true citizens of his kingdom. And that brings us to the second theme that we see in the book. The citizens of the kingdom display God's generosity and weakness. We see this theme in Paul's instructions about the collection for the church in Jerusalem. 
uh, the meeting that Paul was earlier unable to make with Titus, he has now made. The account of this meeting serves as a link for the Corinthians' restored fellowship with Paul. And he's heard the good news from Titus, and now he's sending Titus back to collect funds for the believers in Jerusalem who are in, ex- who are in extreme poverty. And this collection's significance isn't limited to first century Corinth. It tells us something of what citizen, the citizens of God's kingdom are like. Uh, he says in verse 9 of chapter 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Uh, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Did you have a chance to print out the kids' papers? Uh, The exhortation to give is a test of whether the Corinthians have grasped Paul's teaching about the kingdom of God. A kingdom built on the sacrificial generosity of Jesus. Uh, These believers have a responsibility and a glorious opportunity to serve their brothers and sisters in need. Now, we've been saying that a central truth of Christianity is the weakness of those in God's kingdom. And, of course, one of the most common weaknesses, both in the time of Corinth and today, is poverty. So, in providing for the Jerusalem Christians who are poor and evidently weak, the Corinthians would be fighting against the ever-present temptation to mainly use their money in ways that would strengthen them. So Paul calls them to give, and in so doing, to make a spiritual investment. How do you approach giving to other Christians in need? Do you welcome opportunities to sacrifice what you have? What would it look like for us to be characterized by the heart that Paul says the Macedonians exhibited? He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Does this type of attitude characterize us today? Are we the kind of people that give even beyond our ability? Are we to give, do we give only when comfortable, only to whom we really want to give to? Generosity is a fruit of faith in Christ. Instead of trusting our money for ultimate security, we trust God's sovereign care for his children. Therefore, this book teaches us that the healthy church is a church that gives to the needs of others for the spread of the gospel and the building up of believers. Those who participate in this grace should do so cheerfully and liberally. Because Paul says in chapter 9, verses 7 through 9, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He is distributed freely, He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And then the churches of the kingdom display God's grace and weakness. Throughout this letter, Paul stresses the importance of the church. He teaches that the church is where God dwells. Therefore, Christians are called to holiness. In chapter 6, verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The church is where the presence of God rests. 
And therefore, the church displays the glory of God to the whole universe. What does that mean for us as a local church, as a congregation of God's people here in northern Indiana? Paul identifies a few passions that should characterize us as a church body. One, a passion for weakness. One aspect of this letter that you cannot ignore is Paul's passion to exalt God in his ministry. One of the great ways that he does this is by demonstrating God's strength and accomplishing great things through Paul's weakness. As we've already seen, Paul continually refers to his own sufferings in, his, in this letter. And with a joy that seems alien to our comfort-seeking ears, he boasts about these weaknesses as they give glory to God. We too are described as weak. Our bodies are called jars of clay in chapter 4 verse 7 because of their frailty. Uh, but it is precisely in our brokenness that God reveals his strength. That's why Paul exalts in God for even his limitations. Chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, what about us? When suffering comes along in our lives, do we see it as an opportunity for God's power to be displayed to the world, or do we indulge in self-pity? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dramatic pause for an answer. Uh, we can learn from Paul to thank God for circumstances that humble us, that cause us to depend more on God's grace and less on our own strength. Have you ever thought about how a trial in your life could be used by God to make his glory known to your family or to your friends? Listen to what Paul Tripp says about this passage. The closer we get to the Lord, the longer we walk with him, the more fully we understand his word, the more we are gripped with our weakness our inability and sin. Paul said that he would boast all the more gladly about his weakness. It was not because he loved being weak, but because it was in weakness that the power of Christ rested on him. Our weakness will not get in the way of what the Lord wants to do with us. Our delusions of strength will. The power of God is for the weak. The grace of God is for the unable. The promises of God are for the faint. The wisdom of God is for the foolish. So that's the first passion that should characterize churches of the kingdom. We embrace weakness because weakness reveals the sufficiency of Christ. I am not enough and God does not call me strong when I think I am weak as a popular song today plays on the Christian radios. So... God is enough, and he is strong, not when I think I am weak, but when, in all truth and reality, I am weak. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. So, a passion for the gospel. Paul's ministry had been under attack and his authority questioned by the super apostles. In response, he highlights the true gospel. Because by reminding the Corinthians of this central message of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, he would expose his opponents as false teachers who had failed to grasp the reality of God's grace. 
As such, the priority of the gospel should be evident in our church, especially in our preaching. The gospel is what Paul preached, and it is why he preached. Like Paul, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord because we are Christ's ambassadors. So read in chapter 5, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That last verse is one of the most compact summaries of the gospel in the Bible. Before a holy God, every human stands guilty because of sin. Our sin deserves punishment. But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was sinless. He deserved no judgment. Out of his love... Jesus stepped into our place and took the punishment we earned dying on a cross. And Jesus rose again, offering the gift of his perfect righteousness to all who would turn from their sinful lifestyle and believe in him. The message of Christ being a substitute in our place, being sin for us, bearing the punishment of God, was central to the health of the Corinthian church. And it is central to the health of our church. We should pray that his good news would not become old news, but that the Holy Spirit would ignite our passion for the gospel. Because remembering the gospel will protect us from the sorts of false teaching that, enti that had enticed the Corinthians. A church passionate for the gospel is also careful to refute false gospels that do not preach the biblical Jesus. Paul said in chapter 11, and what am I what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Such is the passion of a God driven ministry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a passion for repentance. Repentance simply means turning away from sin and turning to God. Paul is overjoyed with the news from Titus that the Corinthians turned away from their prior sin. And he is eager that they continue, uh, they continue on in this path of repentance. In chapter 7 he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. 
At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides your own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. The type of church Paul is encouraging is first and foremost concerned with godliness. It isn't concerned with prominence or perceived success. It is primarily concerned, concerned with seeing the body of Christ built up and one day presented to God spotless and without wrinkle. That is why we should pray for a passion to continue repenting uh, of our evil ways and to continue relying on the love of Christ in faith. So in all of this, we should see something of ourselves in the Corinthians. They certainly weren't the greatest role models, but isn't it amazing to think that this church, this ignorant, boastful, immoral, and undiscerning church, this church was God's chosen plan to glorify himself in the city of Corinth and around the world. These were the people who God had elected and chosen to save as he told Paul in a dream back in Acts 18. And these were the people that Paul poured so much of his heart and soul and sweat and tears into during his short ministry here on earth. If we don't get anything else from this letters, then let us understand this. The church has never promised to be perfect. If anything, as Paul reminds us, the church is made up of, made up of those who are apparently weak and foolish and insignificant in this world. But our weakness is the soil where God's power makes real fruit grow to his glory. And we follow a Savior who modeled just that. <coughs> Chapter 13, verse 4 says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. As those who hope in the resurrection of Jesus, may we trust God as he transforms a selfish, cranky, impatient, and weak people like us into his glorious and radiant bride. Any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions? Yeah, well, we'll break for lunch for a few minutes. Uh, yes, yes. So, one of the points it has, or one of the points that, um, one of the third points is the so-called super apostles pointed out that Paul lacked credentials. Paul had none of these letters of recommendation from other communities. The itinerant preachers at this time would use to prove that they were legit. Paul this part insisted that worldly commendation has no place in Christian ministry. So in like books and stuff you always see like forwards and you know, recommending either mm. the book or the, the author which oftentimes are pastors. Yeah, yeah. And you also see like recommendations like for pastors that do speaking engagements or whatever mm. else. Is that not the same thing? Yeah. I think the heart of it uh, of, of it isn't that 
commendation has no part in ministry. It should not be the basis on which we accept a minister. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's okay for, like the like what you said, the when we read a book and it has all these pastors or speakers who are giving their commendation on the book, their recommendation. Um, I think that's that's totally fine. It's when what these super apostles were trying to say is the basis for accepting Paul was these commendations. Um, it shouldn't, man's approval should not be the basis of our acceptance of a, somebody who is preaching the gospel. Because uh, also Paul said that in the qualifications for an elder that he should be spoken well of in the community. So there's there's a place where that is absolutely good and sometimes even uh, something that should be looked for, but it shouldn't be the foundation which is laid to say, okay, for <clears throat> somebody to be a pastor here, they have to have been, they have to have won the approval by man, and we have to have letters to prove it. So, that's a good question. Uh, that's honestly that's where uh, I think college degrees are an incredible tool, but when the basis for whether somebody can be a pastor is, does he have a bachelor's or master's degree? That's exactly how I view that. That's man's recommendation. Uh, it is a great tool that I wish I had, but it should never be the basis for whether or not somebody can have a viable ministry. So, uh, any other questions or thoughts on that? You'll see it. <laughs> All right. Here we go. <coughs> That's a wonderful beginning. You just start off by reading the text. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. And with this understanding. Moses was ahead of his time. He proved that you can grow closer to God while constantly holding a tablet, looking at a tablet. <laughs> you can thank Chuck Reed for that. I do this to keep myself entertained while you're preaching. Oh, man, if you only knew half the things I'm thinking while I'm talking to keep myself entertained. Yes, yes. Oh, I am recording. All right. <laughs> Philippians. Now, by this point, we've explored enough of Paul's letters that we have seen a general pattern emerge. Uh, the first section is usually gospel doctrine, and the second is gospel application. And the application only makes sense and really is only possible in light of the gospel. So as we get to the book of Philippians, we're going to see a wonderful twist on this, on this pattern. Because the letter isn't just centered around the gospel, it is centered around gospel humility. So it's gospel humility that is the key to unlocking the many famous imperatives that we find in the book of Philippians. So we've seen so far how the gospel 
informs and even upends the applicative commands in Paul's letters so far. In other words, we cannot understand his instruction correctly if we do not interpret it in the light of the gospel. Uh, So how does humility do the same thing? What would be missing if we attempt to live in the way Paul describes with an understanding of the gospel, but not an attitude of humility? So those are the questions we're going to address as we jump into Paul's letter to the, the Philippians. So the early church was in unanimous agreement that Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, it says so right at the beginning of the letter. And the many personal reference of it, or of the author, fit what we know uh, of Paul from other New Testament books. Now, we don't know when this letter was written, uh, in large part because we don't know where it was written. Uh, it's clear that Paul is in prison, but whether this is his Roman imprisonment, as many have thought, or another imprisonment, like in Ephesus uh, or elsewhere, is not clear. So the best we can nail down the date of this letter is to say that it was written sometime in the mid-50s to early 60s A.D. And though we don't know when he wrote the letter, we do know quite a bit about the people Paul wrote the letter to. He wrote it to the church in the city of Philippi. So why don't we call it the letter to the Philippians? That's what we'll call it now, the letter to the church of the Philippians. So Philippi was a Roman colony uh, at the north of the Aegean Sea, which is today northern Greece. And it was a strategic city in Macedonia. It was a major stop on an important road called the Ignatian Way, which led from Byzantium, or Istanbul, all the way across modern Greece to the Adriatic Sea. And this is the route that Paul actually would follow from Neapolis to Philippi to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. It is also a popular place of retirement for uh, former Roman soldiers and officials. Now, Paul found the church in Philippi around 50 AD during his second missionary journey with Silas. And you may remember from Acts 16 that Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia begging him to come over and help. And so Paul went to Macedonia and stopped in Philippi. And as an indication of just how Roman the city was, Paul didn't find any synagogue there. Remember, his pattern was to go to the synagogue first when he would get to a place. But he didn't find a synagogue there in Philippi. Rather, he found a place just outside the city where a few Jewish women would gather to pray. And God used Paul to to lead at least one of these women to Christ, Lydia, who, as it turns out, wasn't even from Philippi. Paul also healed a demon-possessed slave girl, which caused a riot and led to uh, his and Silas's imprisonment. And God miraculously freed them, and this led to the conversion of the Philippian jailer. his household to Christ. Paul didn't spend long in Philippi, and so the church in Philippi was largely Gentile, born in the midst of suffering and persecution, and quickly without its founder. Uh, And this was the beginning of the Philippian church. So as we go through this letter, keep in mind the circumstances. 
Paul is writing from prison, uh, suffering for the sake of the gospel, and in fact speaking of the very real possibility of imminent death. Yet despite this uncertain future, his letter to the church is actually filled with joy. Um, back in the day, whatever you may think of Warren Wearsby, uh, he wrote a book, a commentary on the New Testament, and they're all, it's the B series, be this, be that, and he named the, his commentary on Philippians, Be Joyful. So that is um, the theme here that we see in Philippians is joy. Paul makes reference to joy or rejoicing many times throughout the letter. And also keep in mind that he is writing to a group of believers who are probably fairly new Christians. They're scared, they're discouraged. Um, I mean, Paul's been imprisoned and they're in danger uh, and suffering their own persecution as well. So why did Paul write the letter? Well, given the circumstances, we might expect that the Philippian Christians were, were falling prey to some sort of heresy. That doesn't seem to be the case. Rather, it would seem that Paul had a number of practical reasons to write the letter. First, he had apparently received a gift from the Philippian church, and he wanted to thank them for it. In chapter 4, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So the book of Philippians 1 is a thank you letter. Second, Paul is writing to update them on his circumstances uh, and to encourage them for fear they might be discouraged because of his chains and imprisonment. So the book is a good book to turn to for encouragement uh, when you're struggling with uh, anxiety, fear, discouragement. And then third, not only does he want to encourage them about his condition, he also wants to reassure them about Epaphroditus. Uh, again, Epaphroditus was who the Philippians had sent to Paul with their gift, but who had become ill and almost died. The Philippians had heard this and were, were concerned, so Paul writes to reassure them to send Epaphroditus himself, uh, reassures them, and to send Epaphroditus himself with the letter. Uh, and in this context, Paul talks a lot about service for the gospel. So this is also a good book to turn to if you need to remind yourself uh, why we should be more involved in service and ministry to the church. And this brings us to the main theme, which is above all of these circumstantial elements. Above all else, Paul writes to deliver a powerful description of the humility of Christ in going to the cross, and he urges his readers to grow in that Christ-like humility. So this is also a good book to turn to uh, for all Christians to be reminded of our basic purpose, to model Christ to others in all ways, including in how he humbled himself to serve his people. So the, that idea of humility is going to be our theme for our study of Philippians. Uh, we'll be crisscrossing the letter thematically, first by looking at what gospel humility is, and then four different ways that it applies to our lives. When Paul tries to put his finger on the heart of what it means to imitate Christ's love, he chooses to talk about humility. Uh, the place where he does this most powerful is in the very well-known passage at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, where he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So to understand Christ's humility more fully, we need to remind ourselves of Jesus' rightful majesty and what he gave up or or laid aside uh, when he became a servant. Remember from Isaiah 9, he is mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And if you're confused by Isaiah 9 calling him uh, everlasting Father, that word Father means uh, chief or authority, not dad. Uh, So he's the everlasting chief. He's the everlasting authority. Because that always confused me why Jesus was called the everlasting father. Um, So I did something weird and novel. I studied it for myself. So I encourage you to do the same. Uh, He is the one who uh, is like a son of man coming coming with the clouds of heaven, who was given authority, glory, and sovereign power so that men of every language worshiped him whose dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, all from Daniel 7. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And firstborn doesn't mean he was the first created. Firstborn in that day and age was a title of preeminence over all. Again, we read it with a 21st century understanding. So, no, it's not saying he was the first one born. It's saying he is preeminent. Um, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's uh, from Colossians 1. So Jesus is king, heir of David, rightful ruler of Israel and all creation. But he is more than just an earthly king. He dwells with the ancient of days and receives worship and everlasting dominion. He is nothing less than God himself. And he has a mission. He is the head of his people, the church. He is the conqueror of death the Alpha, the Omega, the firstborn and judge of creation. Yet the same Jesus, as we just read, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, um, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became a mortal man, a helpless infant, the son of a carpenter in an unimportant backwater town. It's like he was a carpenter in Honeyville. So uh, he went unrecognized by almost everyone. He had few followers. He left no writings, established no school. He was unjustly accused, wrongfully arrested, and executed as a criminal. That's the humility of Christ. He humbled himself to save us. So how much less we are called to do. Jesus, who was and is God, became a man. We, on the other hand, are not divine. We need to acknowledge our our actual human failings. 
Jesus was and is perfect, yet became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We who are sinful must acknowledge and turn from our own sinfulness. Our humility is ultimately a, a reflection of Christ's perfect attitude. We are called to sacrifice our own interests for the sake of others, just as Jesus Christ did for us. And this humility isn't theoretical or, or merely an internal feeling. Paul talks about obedience. He exhorts us to do everything without complaining or arguing. So it seems that complaining and grumbling is one of those common ways that we show our lack of humility. As the saying goes, everyone wants to be thought of as a servant, but no one wants to be treated like one. So how do you respond when you are or even just feel like you're being treated like a servant? Does your response show humility? And our humility is not only a reflection of the love that Christ has shown us, it's also a demonstration that we have understood and grasped the good news of the gospel. Paul warns the Philippians from taking pride in anything other than Christ and his work on our behalf. Uh, he calls all things rubbish in comparison with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Humility, then, is not just a moral virtue that we pursue. Rather, it's, it's the evidence that we have met and been loved by Christ. Uh, so how does humility display itself? First, uh, displays itself in patient suffering. Paul tells the Philippians that one of the ways Christians show humility is by enduring suffering for the sake of Christ with patience. Not just enduring suffering, but enduring suffering for the sake of Christ. And not just enduring suffering for the sake of Christ, but doing it with patience. Paul models patient suffering in chapter 1 when he reflects on his circumstances. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So it didn't matter that he'd been wrongly, wrongly accused and unjustly imprisoned uh, because God glorified himself and spread his gospel through that, uh, even through Paul's hard circumstances. And Paul is even able to rejoice at rival preachers. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, he says, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul goes so far as to say that he is equally happy uh, with life or death, because with life, he can continue working for the gospel, and in death, he is united with Christ. Uh, the very well-known phrase, for me, to live, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, a key verse in Philippians and perhaps uh, the whole Bible. Uh, it might be the most succinct summary of the meaning of life and the Christian attitude towards death in the whole Bible. He goes on to say, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So think about that for a moment. That's an amazing statement. He, Even amid thoughts of his own death, Paul is concerned for the Philippians. He's in prison, and he's concerned for the Philippians. Uh, we tend to think that our suffering justifies uh, at least a little bit of selfishness. But there's no sign of that here with Paul. Paul's chief concern, even when his own life is threatened, is the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, And in this, he shows to the Philippians a model of laboring for the gospel in difficult circumstances. And how do we do that? Humility. Paul saw himself as he ought, as deserving of nothing, and yet gifted with the blessing of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. That's how he can rejoice in God's purposes, even as his own circumstances turn bleak. And then uh, Paul returns to his theme of patience in all circumstances at the end of the letter. Uh, The Philippians had given him aid during his travels, and so he wants to thank them, but also to teach them that God cares for his people regardless of their circumstances. He says in chapter 4, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Uh, In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, uh, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can hit a home run through him who strengthens me. That's what it's about. That's no. Aiden says no. That's not. That's not what it's about. <laughs> yeah, yes. You're wrong. So I just, every time I see you now, that's the word I think. <laughs> so, in uh, chapter one, verses twenty-seven through thirty, uh, Paul turns his attention to his readers. Uh, he exhorts the Philippians to follow this model of patience in the midst of suffering and adverse circumstances. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And I love what he says there. It has been granted to you. It has been gifted is the word. It's been gifted to you that you get to suffer for Christ's sake. Uh, A very different mindset. Paul wants the Philippians, and by extension us, to be prepared to be in want, to be hungry, to to suffer, by knowing how to rely on God's provision of strength. And how will we do that? Not By not considering ourselves to be better than we ought. In other words, humility. We deserve nothing, but have received all things, and so we rejoice. So these are helpful passages for us to turn to if we or a fellow believer are going through hard times. 
uh, whether you're <coughs> unemployed, lonely, struggling against temptation, mocked for your faith, Paul's reminders to the Philippians, rest in God's strength and glorify God in your sufferings. It is a message for you, a message for us. Then uh, humility as unity and support for one another. Uh, the two virtues, unity and generosity, are our flip side. Excuse me, our flip sides of the same coin. When Christians are united, they are moved to care for one another, and caring for one another builds and reinforces gospel unity. Uh, recall again how Paul begins his famous passage on Christ's humility: "Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love." being in full accord and of one mind. Christians imitate Christ's humility by putting disagreements aside and being like-minded, by having the same love, by cooperating together for the gospel, and being one in spirit and purpose. He says earlier that he wants them to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. So again, Paul's presumption is that uh, acting in a manner worthy of Christ involves unity with other believers, both in our hearts and our minds, that is, our spirit, and in action. In other words, contending as one man. So Paul applies the call to unity to the Philippians' specific circumstances. He says in chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In chapter 4, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul here is urging two women in the church who had been destructively arguing to agree with each other and for the church to help them resolve that dispute says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Uh, the NIV says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Paul's exhortation suggests that complaining, arguing, disagreements, unkindness, sharp words, these are the clearest indications of a lack of unity in the body. Uh, have you ever heard someone complaining about church or someone in the church? Probably not. You probably haven't ever heard that. Um, you know, but in some churches, in some churches, not in this church, but in some churches, they might gripe about the music, the chairs, the preaching, some relationship, <coughs> or simply show a, a lack of gentleness uh, and use sharp words. Paul models the right response. He prays to God for unity and exhorts the church to intervene and work for unity. To work for unity. Unity is not automatic. It must be worked for and deliberately sought. And the church has a definite role to play in fostering unity among its members. Uh, Paul sums this up well as he begins the passage on Christ's humility there in chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also on the interests of others, which is exactly what the Philippians had done by looking to Paul's interests before their own. So Paul concludes the letter by reemphasizing his thanks to the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel and the way they had looked out for his interests. 
He thanks them for their concern for him and their generosity in providing financial support. Um, the Philippians' recent gift was evidently, uh, from what we can tell, only the most recent and a long-standing habit of generosity on their part. And Paul praises them for their habit of provision. In 4.15, he recommends them as the only church that shared in uh, earlier days and for sending aid again and again when I was in need, he says. And he says that in sending gifts, the Philippians share in my troubles, suggesting that giving support and experiencing suffering are related. They are different ways of living out gospel humility. And then third here, humility as dependence on God. Ultimately, we cannot imitate Christ's humility on our own. None of us are able to suffer patiently, work for unity, or partner for the gospel solely by the strength of our will or our character. Paul reminds the Philippians that we can make no progress without relying on God and his gracious aid for our salvation and our spiritual maturity. And this is another aspect of gospel humility, that recognizing our own sinfulness and limitations and learning to depend on God in faith for his righteousness and his provision and support. And Paul holds himself out as an example of dependence on God. Now, it's not as if he was humble because he had no reason to think himself great in the world's eyes. He had the perfect religious resume that we kind of hit on earlier uh, when you were in Acts, where he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But Paul insists that Christians put no confidence in the flesh. That is, they don't depend on themselves for salvation or spiritual growth. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul recognizes that he does possess uh, right, righteousness on his own. Rather, he is pursuing a righteousness he recognizes that he does not possess righteousness on his own. Sorry, there's a typo in there that's just a little bit uh, heresy. But other than that, um, <laughs> so rather he is pursuing a righteousness that comes through faith and comes only from God. This is the heart of the gospel. Uh, now the Philippians had surely already heard this. Why do we think that? Well, they were already Christians. So, Paul does not shrink from repeating it to them uh, because it is so important. Christians believe that we are lost and dead in our sins, totally unable to approach God on our own accord or achieve any spiritual good on our own. We cannot find peace with God on the basis of our own spiritual resumes. Uh, for us to be, oh, attending church, giving a tithe, helping the poor, reading the Bible yada 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 so on so on uh, this will not fundamentally alter our spiritual state it will not make us righteous it will not appease God's wrath just wrath against us uh, the one single thing that can do that is Christ's death on a cross and that is a difficult thought because of our natural and sinful pride 
Uh, we want to earn God's favor by our own effort, by our own merit. And it takes a true gospel humility to recognize our complete inability to affect God's mercy toward us. And Christ's death on the cross opens up the way for God's mercy. Only if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, God will forgive our sins and grant us the righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. But our humble dependence on God does not stop with our salvation. It, can, it continues in our sanctification, uh, our, our growth in spiritual maturity and holiness. And while that work certainly involves our own efforts, even that effort is a gift from God and requires continued humility. In chapter 2, 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is an incredible statement. In one sentence, Paul captures the Philippians' responsibility right alongside God's sovereignty. He commands them to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, by which he means that they must work and toil for their sanctification and their growth and holiness, but that ultimately it is God who works in you. So they can rest in his promises and humbly give him the glory. There is no room for pride or boasting in our spiritual growth. Then finally, Paul shows that we are dependent on God not only for our salvation and sanctification, but for daily provision in all things. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So in everything, we should turn to God in prayer. And God is faithful to provide for his people. Uh, and if he doesn't give us exactly what we think we need, he still provides for what he knows we need. Uh, and he says in chapter 4, verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, once again, do you see how humility changes all of this? We depend on God not because it's the right thing to do, but because, having honestly taken stock of ourselves, we desperately have no other option. We cannot help but depend on God to his eternal glory. And then fourth, humility as modeling Christ's example for one another. Uh, our last theme is counterintuitive, at least to the common understanding of, of humility. Humility drives us to be an example of Christ for one another. And Paul points to himself as, as an points to himself as an example. There we go. I are a good talker. Uh, points to himself as an <laughs> I should have just kept going as an example of the Christian life. <clears throat> and he exhorts the Philippians to be an example of e for each other. And, you know, it might sound prideful that he's using himself as an example. Um, if someone walks around saying, I'm an example, everyone should be like me. It, it would sound arrogant, uh, boastful. It would not be what we would say, oh, how humble of him. Um, but that's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is this. Christ is the example. Follow him. If you see Christ in me, follow him. 
Paul is not pointing to himself, but to Christ's work in his life. It takes, a, it takes gospel humility to hold up anything exemplary in your life that others admire and want to emulate and credit it to someone else. Uh, but that is what Christians do. And this is what Paul does in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, note the example he is talking about is not his religious resume, all his uh, worldly accomplishments. He specifically holds out his dependence on God, his perseverance, and his teaching as models for the Philippians. He doesn't only point to himself as an example for the Philippians to follow, he urges the Philippians to also be examples for others to follow. Uh, he tells them, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ as they anticipate future suffering. He exhorts them to be blameless and pure so they will shine like stars in the universe amidst a crooked and depraved generation. And he instructs them to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Paul's exhortation is similar to Jesus in Jesus' instruction to his followers. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The goal is glory to God, not to ourselves. Being an example of Christ. It's part of our witness to the go- of the gospel to unbelievers and part of how we encourage one another in the church. Note also how Jesus and Paul describe the Christian life. Stars and cities don't have to be special to be shiny. It's in their nature to be so. It doesn't take a special kind of Christian to be an example of Christ. Every Christian is one. Notice he says, you are salt, not you should be. You are light, not you should be. You are. Every Christian is one. Christians' holy life should stand out and be a noticeable contrast to the world. So if you or your friends, your family, examine your life and do not find examples of Christ's attitude of love and humility, then you may want to do what something else Paul told the Corinthians. You may want to carefully examine your heart and your faith. As he told them, examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. So that's a good place for us to end. Uh, uh, Philippians now I wanted to say it wrong, Philippians. Philippians. I'm like, that's not right. Philippians, or Philippians, is a beautiful and uplifting depiction of Christ's humility. It's an exhortation for followers of Christ to emulate his humility. So we are called to follow Christ in suffering, in service and unity with one another, in practicing dependence on God, and in modeling Christ to the world. Any questions, thoughts, comments, 
suggestions. Anybody have a song they want to sing? Anything? Okay, then. <laughs> Let's get our Gregorian on.